The following recording is a production of Kicking Out at Two in conjunction with the Retromania Pro Wrestling Podcast Network and is intended for private use only. For more information, head on over to facebook.com forward slash kicking out at two or our Twitter handle at kicking out two, along with searching Retromania with a W on any and all podcast platforms available to listen to archive shows such as this and all the great content of the Retromania Pro Wrestling Podcast Network. Evergreen content at your fingertips anytime at your listening pleasure. And with that being said, we thank you for listening and hope you enjoy the show. Before there was a forbidden door, there was Starcade 1995. We're going to be watching it in length for two hours and 44 minutes here on this episode of Kicking Out at Two. Joining me as, oh, well, not as always, because usually it's Dennis that's joining me, but the, the, the brainchild of this idea as we approach the AEW New Japan Pro Wrestling Forbidden Door event. Uh, my brother and special contributor to this podcast, uh, Justin Rosenbluth, was the one that came up with this idea. He's joining us today as we're going to sit back and watch this match with all of you on the cock, the peacock, if you will. Uh, Justin, what's going on, man? Not much, man. Yeah, I guess formerly the offensive coordinator, not a special contributor. So. Special counsel, maybe. Ooh, I, I like, like that. that. Yeah, yeah a little wise man, counsel. maybe. You're you're the tribe. You're our tribal chief. Yeah. I'm just the special counsel. I like. That. I guess. Yeah. I don't yeah, know. Tri- on the island of relevancy that is kicking out of two. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, anyway, you know, it was about a year ago. I think you came up with this idea, heading into the Forbidden Door, and the schedules didn't permit it. And uh, I'm glad that we didn't cover it then because I don't. I mean, I couldn't tell you. Most of the matches on last year's Forbidden Door, if any of them. Um, and I didn't watch the show, so. Um, but I, I will say that, you know, at the time of this recording, it's early June. We plan to drop this right around a few days before the actual uh, AEW New Japan Forbidden Door. And uh, there's only two matches that have been publicly announced Will Ospreay and Kenny Omega in a rematch from their uh, Wrestle Kingdom uh, match recently in January. And then. The, probably the one that, I wouldn't say I'll go out and buy this pay-per-view, but I'll, I'll probably make a, a concerted effort to see this match um, through nefarious pirating means. Uh, Brian Danielson and Kazuchika Okada in a, yeah. in a singles match. And at the time of this recording, it's been rumored that CM Punk's involvement will be heavy on this show with a match with Kenta Kabashi. Uh, and that's definitely one, I think. A lot of like hardcore fans want to see just based off of their the history of their similarities. But I would definitely agree with you on like that the match with Brian and Danielson, I should say. Dragon, we'll just call him Dragon. Yeah. Dragon and Okada to me has definitely got the more the most sizzle and it's got the, the, the punch to be packed with it because I mean Okada's like would be he's a he's a fucking icon in Japan. Yep. You know, and you know, to me, and I'm in the minority, but to me, the biggest star in AEW in terms of star power and relevancy is American Dragon, Brian Danielson, formerly Daniel Bryan, just because of the, st- the heights he reached in WWE. And yep. I know CM Punk's the big, you know, the appeal, the draw and all that, and that's going to maybe usurp this if he faces Kenta. But, like, to me, Danielson, to me, should be treated more like what they're about, what it looks like they're about to do with him. Yeah, so yeah. I'm looking. I, I don't know if I'll see it, but I that's probably the one I'm looking most forward to as of you know as of right now. Yeah, I don't know what else they have cooked up. I would imagine that uh, seeing that MJF is the AEW World Champion, he'll have a part on this show, maybe against someone like a Hiroshi Tanahashi. 
Is he um, the champ over there? I want to say he is, and I'm not. I'm not. You know, for all you, you know, yeah, hardcores out there, please don't, you know, lynch us by all means. If you yeah, don't listen to the podcast, oh well. But yeah, we, we, I don't. Dennis know. Conduit isn't here to. to <laughs> Dennis, to I know, right? Although, yeah, it would be helpful to have the the. The, the Mike Tanay of New Japan Pro Wrestling. That's right, the yeah. Mike Tanay of kicking out of two, I should say. Yeah, that, that, that would be helpful. Women's wrestling and Japanese wrestling. Yeah, that would be helpful. His schedule, unfortunately, didn't allow um, him to, to, to record with us uh, this time around. But I'm glad you are here with us. So what we're going to do is we're going to go to uh, your Peacock. Uh, and you can sign. Now, I have the commercial-free Peacock, okay? And from time to time, I'll give you guys a timestamp. We might play the audio for some promos. Um, at some point, probably through the halfway point, I think we're going to take a bathroom break. If any, any of you need to hit pause on your um, your listening devices, whether it's your, your smartphone or your tablet or even your computer, um, if you're listening to this on a computer. Uh, but you can go find Starcade 1995. It's season 13, episode 1 in the WCW section of the WWE Hub over on Peacock. It runs 2 hours, 44 minutes, and 18 seconds. And uh, I'll give you guys a little bit of a countdown. And when I say play, press play. And then you can, if you don't want to watch, you just want to listen to what we have to say, by all means, have at it. Uh, but I am definitely looking forward to doing this one uh, with all of you. So without further ado, in three, two, one, hit play. Now, just to provide a little bit of context as we watch this open here. Um, it's a best of seven series between WCW and New Japan Pro Wrestling in the World Cup of Wrestling. As we see the matchups, Benoit Liger, Otani and Eddie Guerrero, uh, Johnny B. Bad and Masa Saito, uh, Kanemoto and Alex Wright, Lex Luger and Masa Chono, Randy Savage and Hiroshi Tenzan, and Sting and Kensuke Sasaki. Um, an interesting lineup. On the WCW side, uh, as we get the, the overhead shot uh, live from the Municipal Auditorium in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, this is early Nitro days. Yes, uh, just a few months after it debuted. Yeah. Yes, just a few months after it debuted, which I got a little tit- interesting tidbit during some of my research. Uh, as we see Tony Schiavone along with Bobby the Brain Heenan and the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, doing the commentary for this show. Um, it had been reported... Um, through the Wrestling Observer, whether you want to consider it a report or not, the WCW had been toying around with the idea of taping Nitro live every other week and going with a, a taped broadcast the Ooh. following week. Now, given what Nitro had provided... So, so the way Raw was doing the way, it. The way Raw was... Well, actually, during this time in 95, I think Raw was live once, and they would tape three one-hour episodes uh, after... Oh, okay. So ap- they would do... So Nitro, as you said, was going to do what again? One Nitro would do one live, and then the next night, or maybe even that same night, they would tape uh, for the following week. Okay. Because okay. Nitro at this time was only one hour. So was Raw. And I know Raw had, like, Superstars and Action Zone and Wrestling Challenge and all these different tapings. Mm-hmm. So you, they, used to, they used to tape four or five episodes. But with Nitro, they only had one episode. Um, they would go live every week. They were toying with the idea of alternating. Now... Um, given what Nitro had provided for the wrestling world and the wrestling landscape um, at this time with all the surprises and things like that, what's your take on them possibly taping Nitro every other week? And what kind of impact would that have had 
on moments like, let's say, Medusa throwing the women's title in the trash can, or even the debut of The Outsiders, Hall and Nash, in, in mid-1996. Well, I think it would have fundamentally changed the Monday Night Wars. Um, having said that, when you go back to the, the infamous, you know, spoiler of Mick Foley winning the title that, that Tony Schiavone, you know, gave the Easter egg on, that migrated viewers to go watch that happen. Yep. Not that WWF would have done that to WCW, but if Dave Meltzer reported on a spoiler of a taped Nitro, I think there could have been some potential intrigue for fans to want to try to also tune in mm-hmm. with more interest because yeah. they knew what already was going to happen. So in the same in the same effect, I think you would have seen something like that. But again, fundamentally, that I think that would have changed. Who knows? Too maybe they would have also maybe they would have like moved all their surprises to the live nitros and kept like the not live ones as status quo type of yeah, storylines. Like, yeah, yeah. Makes, who knows? But again, that just I think that would have fundamentally changed the Monday Night Wars if they did that. Yeah. Uh, what's interesting about that, too, is that, um, first of all, this pay-per-view that took place, as we see Jushin Liger making his entrance, Jushin Liger and Chris Benoit opening up this pay-per-view. Uh, we'll talk about them in a minute. Um, this pay-per-view took place on a Wednesday, December the 27th, following a taped Nitro on Christmas night, December the 25th. So they had taped the Christmas Nitro the previous week following the live Nitro, which saw Randy Savage and Ric Flair... Um, Randy Savage retaining the World Heavyweight Championship I remember against match. Ric Flair um, on a taped Nitro yep. on Christmas night. Now, it's interesting because, you know, before this pay-per-view, the WWF used to put on, well, even before WWF, Jim Crockett Promotions used to run Starcades on Thanksgiving night. Yep. And WWF used to run Survivor Series on Thanksgiving night and then migrating to Thanksgiving Eve. We would see the Taboo Tuesdays yeah. that would come later. Uh, what, are your, what is your take on midweek pay-per-views? And do you think it's something that could, could possibly uh, be resurrected in today's uh, landscape? I think it depends, really. I mean, um, I think it would be cool to see like a Thanksgiving night Survivor Series or, you know... Um, even like Dynamite on Wednesdays when they have that night day before Thanksgiving show, that's always kind of like a cool little... Like, they make it like a bigger yeah, deal. Yeah, yeah they, try like, to, they try to bring that wrestling um, Thanksgiving tradition back. I'll yeah, that, if I yeah. remember correctly, WCW also did like Halloween Havocs during the middle of the week too, didn't they? I feel like this Halloween Havoc... This uh, this ninety five was like a no. Those were those were weekend. Those, those were Sundays. Yeah, those were Sundays. I feel like there was like a, WWF used to do Summer Slams on Mondays. Yeah, and then WrestleMania two was on like on a Monday night, wasn't it? I, don't I remember rem- you telling me that. I feel like I don't remember. Um, I'll be honest with you. But so yeah, I do. I think do I think that's kind of a cool thing. Yeah, but I think we're sort of seeing that uh, a little bit in drips and drabs of like the Saudi Arabia shows, like on a Thursday afternoon. Something like that. I know yep. we had one on Saturday just recently. Yeah. Um, so I think when you do with the international twist and that expansion on the WWE side, and eventually I'm sure on the AEW side, where you might see like based on time zone differences, like the possibility of that opening like, up. More. Like Money in the Bank in July is going to take place on a Saturday at three o'clock in the afternoon here stateside. And I think that's super cool because yeah. um, it just I don't know. Like sun- Sunday night is just not a good night. Like for stuff like that, I feel like sat moving them to Saturdays like they have has been cool, and just you know like the time difference. Like if you can do it earlier, the better. Why yeah. not? You know what I mean? Like I, I, you're making it destination television in a way yeah. by doing it at that in that time frame. Yeah. Plus, like you know, you look at like what's the programming that you're going to get on like a weekend. Um, 
the NFL, I mean, does football all day on a Sunday. College football all day on a Sunday. Yeah. Why not have, you know, maybe not necessarily running up against those, but just in general, like, if you have the opportunity to do something in the afternoon, why not? You yeah. know what I mean? I just, you know, and it, again, I think it would be a cool little twist, and it makes something a little bit more of an enjoyable event, to a more of a gathering, I feel like, you now, could have. Now, I don't know for certain, as we're watching this, but I'm just gathering, based on logistics and scheduling, that... Their reason behind putting a pay-per-view on a Wednesday evening like this was because of the holiday weekend itself. Christmas falling on a Monday, they take their Nitro the previous week, and then the following Nitro will be on a New Year's, it will be New Year's Day. Yeah. So um, I would guess that them scheduling this on a Wednesday is no different in a sense than when they used to schedule those Clash of the Champion events on a Wednesday yeah. or a Thursday or even a Tuesday um, during this yeah. time period in WCW. Yeah, I think it's just that probably this one is just the way the calendar fell in terms of like like you said, like Christmas and New Year's happening on a Monday, Sunday type thing where it's just like, you know what, like it's just not feasible or maybe the smartest approach to try to sell tickets on a, on a holiday like that. And so if you, let's just get out in the middle of the week. If you think about it, too, like you said, holiday, okay? It didn't matter what day of the week you put the show on. December has traditionally in wrestling history been known for being a down period in terms of, like, major pay-per-view events. Unless you were, unless you, you, you built some massive main event or a massive card for December, um, December pay-per-views were, were not traditionally very well received because – the, you know, wrestling, majority of it at this time in 95, catering to young kids, mm-hmm. even though WCW was trying to go a little bit more um, older on the demographic side. The um, you know, parents have already shelled out hundreds of dollars for their kids for Christmas. Yeah. Now you expect them to shell out another 50, 60 bucks for a pay-per-view? It's, it, it, right. it's, there, it's kind of a tall task in that is, sense. Well, there is, there, I think there was that element of that back then, but now when you're talking about things that are streaming, like, and you're already kind of, that's already baked into your, to your budget. Yeah. Like, you can still get away with it. However, I think in a streaming world, it's different. This is however, you know, traditional pay-per-view. But, but, but in the streaming world, we still see that type of like lull, if you will, where it's very TV based and they're just trying to like, especially in the WWE, they're just trying to get to the Royal Rumble. Yeah. Like there's, there's like. Survivor Series, and then from then to like the Royal Rumble, that's like a solid like eight weeks where they are just they're building up their TV program. But there's also just crap weeks where yeah. like they do a Slammy Awards or they do a Best of or like stuff like that where yeah. like they're it's 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 an arduous road to the Royal Rumble because they're also competing with college football national championship and yep. NFL playoffs and things like that. But um, yeah, I don't I don't. I don't. I like. I do like that gap, though. Like, did they have a pay per view in December? They WWE. They haven't had one in a couple of years. Yeah, I think since the 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 Thunderdome era. I think the last one they did was like the the Randy Orton Bray Wyatt match where they had to set one of them on fire. Mm, I thought that was like a fast lane or something. Maybe that was right TLC. WrestleMania. I think that was TLC because that's that's what set Wyatt out for a few months, and then he came back at a fast. Oh, you're right. he was he was Orton was wrestling Alexa Bliss. Yeah, I think it was. and then yeah. that set up Wyatt's return. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, but yeah, I think I, I like that there is no pay per views because like sometimes you just don't need it. And like I said, there's nothing wrong with just having some with trying to like solidify some good episodes of TV. Like in this instance, having a world title match on free TV, things like that. Like yeah. there's nothing wrong with doing that. Uh, making those episodes more important. I think, the, you know, last year, the last episode of SmackDown 
was a John Cena episode John Cena return, yeah. You know, and, and why not? Like, we got to make those shows important too. Yeah. So I think, I think there is, um, there's a good strategic reasoning behind it that definitely makes sense and is welcomed. I think also, in, you know, to, to kind of button up this subject, when it comes to during this time period in WCW, you know, I try to look at it from like when, when we were kids. So we're, we're both home from school on school vacation in between mm-hmm. Christmas and New Year's. You know, we might have gotten some money from our grandparents or our uncles or whatever, aunts and uncles or even our own parents, right. you know, a little spending money. You know, you, I, I wouldn't be surprised if WCW was also trying to tap into that audience that is at home during the week of in between Christmas and New Year's to, to gain some pay-per-view buy rates. Yeah. Um, during this time period where, you know, you, you know, a young Dave Rosenbluth and a young Justin Rosenbluth beg mom and dad, hey, can we get Starcade? You yeah. know, and, and yeah, and you don't have to go to you don't have to get a, go to bed and wake up early. The next yeah, exactly. You don't have to, exactly. Like, like, yeah, definitely. I yeah. think there's some of that, too. And so you're, you're kind of banking on that type of purchase. Like, it's, I wouldn't say it's I wouldn't say a last minute purchase, but like a on the whim type of purchase, of, especially for Starcade, too, because Starcade was like their WrestleMania. And it was a big deal, even even up until this point. Like, Starcade, and I don't know if we're going to talk about this further, but there was like an element of Starcade every year where like it was thematically different. This being one of the years where it was like the World Cup of Wrestling. One year it was the Battle Bowl. One year it was yeah, they did know, battle. They put Battle Bowl the, the, on the, the a million dollar times, challenge. Yeah. I think was one of the earlier ones when it was with um, it was Flair versus Dusty and who was the ref? Joe Lewis. Joe Lu- no, not Joe Lewis. Um, Joe Frazier. Joe Frazier. Joe Lewis was long gone by then. I oh, think. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, yeah, like everything had the night a theme of Skywalkers in '86. Yes, yeah. exactly. So every yeah. and they did that on purpose, and this is another iteration of that. But still, it was a big effing deal. Yeah. Like you know, going all the way. You know, two years later, to me, like one of the most hyped up matches ever: Sting versus Hogan. That's like the best job WCW. A non WWE company ever did hyping a match. Yeah, in my opinion. Yeah, we can go all. We can talk about the finish all that's day. Not, but yeah, that's not the a, build up towards that show was probably the best they'd ever done. In and it was and history. it was important because it was at Starcade. Yeah, you know what I mean. Star, yeah. there and was it, lineage and tradition yeah. to it. Um, yeah, Starcade was a great. Starcade was a up until then was like probably that year too because after that it kind of started to taper off. Was a big deal. It was one of the biggest yeah, shows it, of the year. It, I will say it dipped. Um, in 94. And I actually want to talk about the pay-per-view numbers itself because I got okay. some notes here. Okay, cool. Um, so, you know, this is like we talked about at the beginning. This was Ooh. the early iteration. Nice brain buster by yeah. Liger on Benoit. The early iteration of the Nitro era. Well, now we know. And and Bischoff. <laughs> <laughs> that explains a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> actually, there's a, if you've ever seen the clip, or were, were, you ever seen the clip when uh, Two Cold Scorpio does that, like, um, that like uh, somersault leg drop onto Benoit, but he la- he lands at his his ass lands on Benoit's face. Yeah, that was the moment, right? You have to YouTube well, I was that. Gonna shit. Say, there is a that was I the think moment, I've seen right? that. There, it, I was gonna say there is a meme out there. That we're gonna go off the rails for a half second before we jump back on. Is a picture of Magic Johnson with like surrounded on a beach, surrounded by like let's just say double digits amounts of women, oh, and the, shit. It, and the caption is <laughs> the caption is this had to be the day. <laughs> And when I see when I see that brainbuster or that too cold Scorpio spot, that had to be the that day. had to be the day. That had to be one the of those day. had to be the day. <laughs> oh man, that's great. Um, so this is the early you know Nitro era. Bischoff is experimenting with a lot of different things. 
um, making this a variety show of sorts. Um, WCW, at the, at the very least, making it a variety show. As we see Kevin Sullivan embroiled in a rivalry with Chris Benoit, uh, making his presence known in that Brother. match. Yeah. Father! <laughs> With his thick Boston accent. The Winter Hill gang over Have you ever seen Kevin the Sullivan. You ever seen that, that Broken Skull episode with Nash? Yes, he does, he does Kevin, a good Kevin Sullivan. Kevin Sullivan. Yeah. Brother, did you hear that? That was the iceberg. It's called WrestleMania. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, um, so Bischoff during this era, as we see New Japan just got the victory, Liger over Benoit. A little help from the Taskmaster, Kevin Sullivan. Um... They've been, they've been turning Nitro into a variety show. You had a mixture of, of top stars like Hogan and Flair and Sting and Randy Savage. And then you had, you know, a pretty good mid-card with, you know, guys like Eddie Guerrero, Chris Benoit, um, uh, eventually Chris Jericho. They would in, they would introduce cruiserweights at yep. some point, you know. Um, tag team wrestling was pretty solid this time with the Steiners and Harlem Heat mm-hmm. and the Nasty Boys and things like that. Um, I'm not saying WCW was setting the world on fire because this was also the same period where they had the fucking Dungeon of Doom. But Bischoff was making a concerted effort to do things completely opposite. And this concept itself was completely opposite as to what the WWF was presenting. Now, in the year that... Now, I'm trying to correlate this to to Hulk Hogan's involvement. Mm -hmm. Even though Hogan's not on the show. Hogan, before coming to WCW... Their pay-per-view buy rates were, were, were nothing to, to, to write home about. It was Dominic's father here. Yeah. <laughs> Eddie Guerrero. Yeah. A, a, a pre-Latino heat, if yeah. you will. Um, but um, in the year that Hogan had been with the company, WCW's buy rates had gone up 100,000 more yep. each show. That makes sense. Now, That's like uh, a whole AEW pay-per-view, just for context, folks. Yeah, so... <laughs> Let's just put this into context. WCW Bash at the Beach, July 17th, 1994, did a 1.02 buy rate, coming out to 304,458 pay-per-view buys. The most that entire year. Okay? Okay. Um, Hogan's involvement in Halloween Havoc 1994 with Ric Flair in the cage, the retirement match. 297,335 pay-per-view buy rates. This, uh, now, now to, to kind of correlate it back. Starcade, 1994. Hogan and The Butcher, yep. Brutus Beefcake, did 187,135 buys. That's where kind of Starcade dipped a little in terms of the theme because it was just standard, regular matches. The year prior, the big, uh, the, in 93, Flair putting his career on the line yep. against Vader. Like you said, the Battle Bulls were a theme for a couple Skywalkers, of years. The Skywalkers. Uh, the they even did like the Million Dollar Challenge. What was, what was it? 1980. 1990, they did like a world tag team tournament with team yeah. tag teams from Lethal oh, Lottery or whatever. Yeah, they did um, a whole bunch of stuff. They tried stuff and that like like that. And I know I said a few minutes ago that like Starcade was like the WrestleMania of um, of WCW, but I think to the point you're about to make when you kind of put those numbers next to like Starcade and Halloween Havoc, from the time Hogan got there, Halloween Havoc definitely seemed like a bigger show. On a year-to-year In basis. some degree, yes. And I, even to me, like, yeah. like you said, it just, I don't know, it just had more sizzle to it. Yeah. You know, just like Slim Jim's Halloween Havoc, Snickers, Las Vegas, it had a much more panache to it than Starcade. Starcade was more of like your, I don't know, end of the year... Celebration. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, no, sorry, go ahead. Now, Hogan's not on this show. Yeah, right, yeah, for, yeah. For television reasons, he was suspended. Because these are wrestlers. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know how well he I, well, You know what, though? To Hogan's credit, if you watch some of his old Japan stuff. Yeah, he threw a dropkick. He fucking hit. I watched a match with him and Anoki once uh, in Japan, and he went hold for hold with Anoki. And then yeah, no, 90, he, yeah, of course. In 93, he wrestled Muda during his run, during the end of his run in the WWF, and they had a fantastic match. Yeah. Um, so, the, so, Starcade 94 did 187,000 buy rates, okay? Now you go to Starcade 1995. This, this episode show, yeah. that we're watching, 113,314 <laughs> buys. Yeah. With now, Matt, compare that Hogan and Beefcake on top to this World Cup concept, yeah. and more people wanted to see Hogan and Beefcake course, at that time, naturally, which is crazy to me. Well, I think you're looking at casual fans really making up that difference, whereas casual fans don't give a fuck about who Saito is or. That's you know, yeah, that's, that's, that's where it's getting at. Yeah, too. I think that's and that's that's a shame. Yeah, but it is what it is. Like, yeah. don't ignore that either. Yeah. You know what I mean? I like shows like this um, when they're used properly, and I don't know if there's really ever been uh, a concept, even Forbidden Door, that's really done it as well as it gets done here, where it's it's like a standalone show. It's like it exists in its own silo, yeah. if you will, where it's like... It kind of puts like some of the existing storylines and arcs on pause. Yeah, maybe pull. a little bit of integration, but like yeah. you don't have to like... There's not a lot of catching up you have to do to watch this show. Yeah. Like, I, like if I brought someone over to watch this live and they, I don't have to sit there and go, well, Alex Wright is the... This guy champion and this is what he's doing and yeah. this is what he's fighting. Yeah. It's just a straight up like showcase. Yeah. And that's what I... like. When you can do those every once in a while, like that kind of like I think allows things like you said to breathe, and you can put things on hold, and it's not crucial. Yeah, it's just a showcase. You you, you can integrate some of what's going on. Yeah, like with Kevin Sullivan there. Yeah, a little bit, but you know, don't over don't don't water down the concept. Yeah, you know what exactly. I mean. And, and, and like you said, because otherwise it, it it takes it away from being a standalone show. Exactly. So this Starcade was the lowest bought pay per view in 1995 for WCW. Now let me bring to you. Some of the business WCW did in 1995 on pay-per-view. Okay, Super Brawl Five, headlined by Hogan and Vader for the first time, which as a kid was a very intriguing matchup for yes. me because Hogan was the hero and Vader was the top dog in WCW. He had just mulled through everybody. It was like so, Brock Lesnar before Brock exactly. Lesnar. Yeah. Okay, that show did 298,861 pay-per-view okay. buy rates. Okay, the following all. month, uncensored. Headlined by Hogan and Vader in a strap match, mm-hmm. where the entire card was had was was showcased as, you know, all different types of gimmick matches. Okay. Yeah, I was thinking extreme rules before extreme. Exactly. Rules. That show did three hundred two thousand twenty three buys. Wait, was this this was this 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 is ninety five, right? Yeah. Which one's the one where it was like Macho and Hogan versus like the whole fucking? That was ninety six. Okay. Yeah. That was ninety six. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I thought that was 95 for some reason. Now, Slamboree 1995, headlined by Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage against Ric Flair and Vader in a tag team match, did 179,346 buys. Now, if I remember that pay-per-view, because I feel like I'll do some of these little, like, month-to-month, like, you know, marathons of shows. Like, I remember watching all the Starcades during December because mm-hmm. I just felt like doing it. I did that with Slamboree. Probably during COVID, right? Yeah, I think I did it with Slamboree, too. And I was watching that 95 one, which was, like, a terrible show. But if I remember correctly, didn't they do a, like, a Legends match on that show? Where the, it was in black and white? They've done those. I don't remember if they like, did it on that show itself. It was, like, fucking Wahoo McDaniel against, like, 
somebody like I don't know. They probably Dick, Dick did. Murdoch. They probably they, like, did they, on they, that they show. They filtered the screen to be black and white. They did that on, on the. On, I know that they they did that on the previous Slammery events. Yeah, and they did like they, Tully Blanchard and somebody yeah, else. Yeah. Then was. they also did. I remember specific to the Hogan match that on that Slammery, like either before the match or after the match was like the first Easter egg slash appearance of the giant. They like you could see like a shadowy figure. Yeah, so the it was and so they were like, Hogan's entrance. Yeah, and, and him and Savage came out, and they you like, see in the back like who's that guy yeah. in the back? Like Which that was, was actually kind of cool. That was the first. That was that was the first introduction to the giant, who would eventually be known as the Big Show, um, in later years. Um, that show did, like I said, one hundred seventy nine thousand. The following month. They brought the Great American Bash back. It took a hiatus for a couple of years. Yeah. And they brought it back, and it was headlined by Randy Savage and Ric Flair. Um, Savage's dad was at ringside, right? Yeah. Yep. Which stemmed from the post-match angle. Yeah. It stemmed from the post-match angle at Slamboree when Flair and Anderson beat up Angelo Poppel. Yep. Uh, 160,476 pay-per-view buys. So what was the slamboree again? One Hogan, one? Hogan and Savage the against Flair and Vader. What was the buy rate? That did one hundred seventy nine thousand. All right, so he kind of went even, buys. more or less, month to month. If yeah. you're looking at like that angle carrying over, so he went like big jump the following month, and I could see why. Bash at the Beach, nineteen ninety five, from Huntington Beach, California, live on the I beach. I always love that that Baywatch episode. Yes, that show headlined by Hogan and Vader inside of a steel cage for the World Heavyweight Title did two hundred fifty eight thousand thirty five buys. There was also on Savage and Flair in the lifeguard Flair. match, which was a yeah. lumberjack match. I think there was. Um, I'm trying to remember because I've seen the show because it's always fun to watch it because it's like outdoors. Yeah, so I, I love that there show. There was uh, was it DDP versus um, Dave Sullivan? Dave Sullivan, yep. <coughs> or not DDP Diamond Dallas Page. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but Sting fought. Was it Kansuki Sasaki Haku, or Meng? Oh, he fought Meng. You're right. Yeah, he had defeated Meng the month prior. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah for yeah. the U.S. title um, in the tournament. That's all I really remember from that. Harlem Heat, the Nasty Boys, and uh, Stephen Regal and Bobby, Sir Lord or Earl Robert of Eaton, Eaton. Yep. Earl of Eaton. Yeah. Oh, okay. That was that was on that show as yeah. well. Okay. Uh, Renegade, I think, and Mister Wonderful Paul Orndorff yep. wrestled yep, on that right. show as well. That. Yep. Um, I think Arn Anderson might have been in a match. I don't remember. Um, yeah. Or, if, or maybe he was involved in the lifeguard match, which right. was the lumberjack match. But that's always a fun show. Like you said, two hundred and fifty. Two hundred fifty-eight thousand. By uh, 258,035 buys, okay. headlined by Hogan. Then it takes a little bit of a dip. Fall Brawl 95, headlined by the War Games match with Hogan, Savage, and Luger and Sting mm-hmm. against the Dungeon of Doom, mm-hmm. did 151,061 buys. Which is like unfortunate because like, that's like a fucking all star lineup in a cool match concept. But whatever. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, it was Dungeon of Doom. Yeah. And then, I remember as a fan thinking, real quick before you keep going, like going back to Kevin Sullivan, like Hulk Hogan spent years, even to my young self, just slaying fucking monsters. Dragons, And you're yeah. going to tell me this little fucking midget <laughs> yeah. is, is a threat to Hulk Hogan, which is perfectly segues to bringing in the giant. Yeah. But like, you're going to stop Hulk Hogan? Yeah. All these people couldn't do it? You're yeah. going to stop him? Like, okay, pal. But yeah, in hindsight, if you look back on it, like if they just presented it with like Sullivan as like the, the Sullivan is like the mouthpiece to the giant instead yeah. of that whole Dungeon of Doom thing, I think I think the 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 spin that they tried to do as portraying him as Andre's son. Remember when they did that? I think that might have gotten over a little bit better than Andre's son and the Dungeon of Doom. Yeah, I remember that Halloween Havoc. 
Well, you're probably about to drop those numbers. I'll, I can, I can. 100, 188,837. I remember miles. that being a huge Halloween habit. Cobo the Hall. Fucking monster trucks and everything. And then, uh, and then, uh, Andre, the giant falls off the roof and then they like go back to the broadcast table. I was at Dean's house Heenan, for that. Bobby Heenan was like, oh my God, I knew his dad. This is so terrible. Like, <laughs> now, like they really, they, did, they, they tried, tried to sell you on They it. tried hard to make you believe in that little. And I remember as a, like, all the little nuggets they put in. You probably were the one that told me, like, yeah, like it's Andre, it's Andre's son. He's coming back to like go after Hogan. And yeah. Like, and then you see him, and you're like, oh my god, he's got the one strap singlet. He's and, seven feet tall. Yeah. yeah. And of course, he's Andre's yeah. son. Like, yeah. There's nobody else like him out yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. And then like, there. Even then, you like, but he's like younger, and he can like jump off the top rope, and like you're like. Then you were like, okay, that this guy's gonna. I be think Hogan. in theory it wasn't a bad idea. The execution was poor. People shit all over it, like, oh, like, oh, they tried to turn him into Andre's son. Like, what? I don't get what. Maybe it's just because I'm the Hogan mark in me, but I don't see what would have been wrong with that story that he was trying to get. Why he was trying, you know, get revenge for his father, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, of course. I I don't, I don't, I don't, but it also, what, as much as we talked about how much they tried to play it up in certain scenarios, like with. Heenan being overwhelmed because the you know giant fell off the roof and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's not like when he got introduced in the ring, Dave Penzer was like, "Here's Andre the Giant's son." Yeah, like, it wasn't said like every two seconds. Either. No, it was just it they was just it was important yeah. moments when it was necessary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it wasn't nice a huge German thing. suplex. Yeah. Well, before I continue here with the pirates, what was your take on Alex Wright? I liked him. Yeah, yeah, I liked him definitely. Um, he was another guy like everyone talks about the Luchadors in WCW, right? Like mm-hmm. being such a like he being, you know, the the German wrestler from you know, the guy yep. from Germany, that was just another worldly person yep. in in the company that was there. Because again, in WWE, like you were the fucking garbage man. Yeah. You were the goon. Yeah. You were the Hog fucking, farmer, yeah. Yeah, you that was their variety, like yeah. your occupation. The variety here is like, here's this wrestler from Germany, yeah. from Tijuana, from, from Japan, Japan yep. wherever, you know, from Canada. Like they were all wrestlers, but they were just from different parts of the world. Yeah. So like that part I liked about WCW and slat sort of sidebar here to that. And I think we're, we're past this now. WWE on the WWE side. I remember, I remember going to WrestleMania 24. We like, we've talked about before, like we met in Florida. Like I came from New York, like we met at our grandparents' house. And I remember Nana specifically asking us like, Oh, so this is like a big show. Like do wrestlers from all over the world wrestle on the show? And in my mind, I was like, yeah, but not really. Like, yeah, it's yeah. all the same wrestlers. Yep. Like see them every at, week. But 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 like at that time, those wrestlers on that roster in two thousand eight weren't, for the most part, distinguishable by their characters in terms of origin. Mm-hmm. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Whereas now they are a little bit more. There is a more worldly element, geographic to element to it. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like, I I don't know why I just thought of that other than the fact that like. WWE wasn't big on that, like this guy from this country, unless it was like an, an evil anti-American character. Yeah. But now they really do kind of highlight a wrestler from where they're from, um, more so than they. I'd say in the last five, six, seven, eight years, um, they do highlight wrestlers and, and and make their origin of country, their country of origin, a part of who they are. The reason why I said this because this was happening here in 1995 in yeah. WCW, yep. and that I liked. Yeah, definitely. that was what the, that was the, that was the appeal for me as a younger fan, even before this this time period of, of watching WCW. Like I remember thinking I was pretty fucking cool that I was the only one who knew the Great Muda. 
Right, you know? right, right. Because right. I watched him on WCW wrestle Sting and Ric yeah. Flair, you know, names like that. So, like, mm-hmm. WCW, I think that was a big appeal. A part of the appeal for me as a fan of WCW was the international flavor yes. and how they presented them being from their countries and not being, like you said, a fucking garbage man or, yeah. you know, a, a hog farmer or whatever. Yeah. Um, even though I still liked what some of what WWF was doing, there was that international... Um, Professional sports Olympic type of in WCW, you mean? Uh, yes, yes, appeal of some of their wrestlers, um, and obviously with this World Cup concept uh, coming to life on this episode. Yeah, just the individuality of the wrestlers in WCW was 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 approached differently. Like I said, like you said, the 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 Olympic element, the, like even on a weekly basis, the you know the, the luchadors and Alex Wright and. You know, these guys from oh. Japan, like, that was part of their individuality. And there's a victory there. Was that 2-0 now? Yeah, now um, Japan's up 2 nothing. But, um, whereas in WWE, for a long time, up until, like I said, maybe like five, six, seven, eight years ago, their individuality came in the character they were portraying. Yeah, not, yeah. Cause, because, you know, the, the age-old, like, Chief J. Strongbro is not a Native American. He's an Italian. Yeah. You know what I mean? Same thing yeah. with, with, um, with, what's his name? Muhammad Hassan. Ivan Putski. Not Polish. He's from Texas. Yeah, he's not Polish. Um, Like, you portrayed something that was, you know, maybe of a nationality, but it wasn't necessarily authentic or true. And you know what's interesting? And it wasn't interesting. You know what's interesting about that, as you say that? Vince McMahon Sr., when he laid his eyes on Hulk Hogan. Oh, yeah, the Irishman, right? The Irishman. He he had thoughts of, like, this Irish wrestling. Yep. Because... He made so much money with Bruno San Martino as this Italian icon that yep. bridged the gap between Italian Americans. Yep. Um, that he, when he saw Hulk Hogan, he thought of this like, in the, especially in the New York tri-state area where a there's a big Irish, Irish population. Absolutely. He saw Hogan as like his Irish representative. Yeah, yeah. And, in many and ways, it's funny how that like that um, that philosophy of 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 labeling characters was abandoned very much when Hulk Hogan came back to the WWF and the boom happened. Yeah. Like it wasn't about your, where you were from. It was what you did and yeah, you know, how you looked yep. and you know, those types of things, which is, which who's going to argue with the success of that really. But it was just, you know, to your point, I like this. This is a variety that was new and fresh and it's in a, some ways still is. Yeah. It's a, it was a very underrated show for its time. It was actually in many ways you could say ahead of its time. Yeah. Uh, the concept itself with the World Cup and the best of seven series. Uh, let me finish off here with some of these numbers. The, fall, uh, the month prior to this show, World War Three, which was the debut of the three-ring 60-man battle royal. Yep. Headlined by Randy Savage, winning the the WCW the vacant WCW yep. title. That show did a hundred and let me take a look here, hundred and eighty-eight thousand eight. Or no, I'm sorry, one hundred thirty-five thousand three hundred forty pay-per-view buy rates. Now, such a throwaway pay-per-view. I feel like I feel I felt like what like it was like. WCW's version of the Royal Rumble. Yeah, like, oh, you got one ring with 30 ribs, we have three rings with 60. Like, yeah. look at us. Like, I will can say you top as, that? As like, a kid, I never watched any of those shows live, but I always right. thought the appeal with the three rings, I was like, that's kind of cool looking. Right. And then a couple of years ago, on this show, Dennis and I did a watch-long of that pay-per-view match, the, just, the, just the World War III Battle Royal. And you, you'll have to go back and listen to it. Maybe you can watch it. Um, that's my dryer buzzer going off. Don't worry. Um, I'm not in trouble. Um, 
going back and watching that match and trying to do a watch along podcast of that yeah. was very confusing. Yeah, it's it's not even a match. Like it's just people talking and then like if they have the time to like oh someone got thrown out or oh look at what this guy's doing. Like it was like it was like the Royal Rumble if you fast forwarded the Royal Rumble. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Watched it on fast forward. Pretty much. Like, that's what it was, and it was. But there, but again, all the guys were in the ring at the same time. You know what I mean? Which is also like, ugh. It just wasn't a match. It was a great let me up match. Or excuse me, it was a let me up match that wasn't intended to be a let me up match. Yeah. Now, I wanted to talk to you about, there There might be some out there, some of the hardcore diehards that listen to this podcast that will say, you know, because we said at the top of this this program, this is the precursor, this show really is the precursor to what AEW and New Japan are pre- have presented um, within the last year with their Forbidden Door. Like I said, this is the OG Forbidden Door. If you yeah, know. yeah. Um, but well, yeah, some yeah. may argue that the old Super Clash events would be considered Forbidden Door-esque. Sure. But there's a difference here. With those Super Clash events, those were a bunch of promoters that got together and they put the best of their their each promotion and those matches on the events, there was never any interpromotional matches, if you will. Right, right. With right. the exception of the final one being Jerry Lawler, Kerry Von, Von Erich to unify the um, the the world class and A- AWA World Heavyweight Championship, um, where they did the whole dusty finish with the blood, the blood, Kerry bleeding, and Lawler never gave up, and all this other stuff. But um, some interesting matches here. Um, but yeah, I don't think I would say that. Like to 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 kind of pose that idea, I don't think. Yeah, I wouldn't consider this a forbidden door. That I, concept, I think that was just kind of like, if you think about it, Starcade, the original Starcade, was that concept first. Yeah, because because Jim Crockett Promotions, while they were the ones that promoted the card, they didn't. All those talents on that show were not working in Jim Crockett Promotions. That is a good. Point. That was a very much a. Here's the best of the NWA. Yeah. Not just Jim... Well, Jim Crockett was... Georgia and... Yeah. Yeah. Like St. Louis and all of that. Like, that was... That was... People... That's a nugget that people don't really remember is that Starcade 83 was very much a super... Like, that was Super Clash before Super Clash. That's that's a good point. You know what I mean? It It was the best of... The brands. Have you ever heard the story about how, how Harley? I'm sure you have about how Harley Race almost didn't make it to that Starcade. Yeah, I've heard that before. Where um, he, he he was he was in the he was in a bathroom of a hotel in Stamford with Vince McMahon, and Vince wanted him to show up on WWF TV with the NWA title, and Harley turned him down. And in coincidentally, during that during that time period, Harley was having some issues with. Bob Geigel and the NWA over the positioning of Harley's territory within the NWA. Well, I believe he and Geigel were partners. And Geigel, from what at least Ric Flair will say and some others, Geigel was not the most likable, reliable. He was shrewd. He was much like a lot of the other old guys. He was he was cheap and yeah. you know. Well, Vince McMahon will tell you about a lot of these promoters, which I believe to be true, is that these guys didn't invest in their businesses. They they were crooks and they made money and they pocketed change for themselves yep. and then they would shortchange wrestlers and string them along. They were carnies. Whereas Vince McMahon, up until probably today, he makes his money and he pours it right back into his business. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So yeah, like definitely like 
Harley Race, who that was the that was like the I think that was kind of the way that wrestlers like would elevate their careers. Like they would they would work in a territory, then they would they then they would travel around, but then maybe come back to a territory and then buy into a territory. Yeah, like Gorilla Monsoon, I believe, bought into Puerto Rico. Yeah, he, um, has, he had a piece of that. Yeah, like wrestlers, like but when he also careers had, were slowing down, it became like a, a method of passive income. He also had a piece of the WWF. The WWF. And I've heard he made stupid money off of shows in the boom because of mm. his. Piece in the Vince McMahon transaction from his. Family. I heard. I heard that Vince Jr. took care of him. Pretty much, he had a job for life and took care of him and up like, until the day he died. Earned a percentage of every show that took place, and that was when they were running like three shows a night. Yeah. That, <laughs> so, yeah oh yeah. When the, yeah you know what I mean? A, B, and C towns. Yeah. yeah, and he was getting a, a share of all those live gates. Um, but I think, yeah, like back then, like that was your thing. Like when you reached a certain level, like a Harley race was in the early '80s, where you were. Essentially, the best in the world. Yeah. Up until you know, before passing that torch, like the next stage of your career, as you started to probably slow down, was again to buy into a territory, do some business, um, and again, just kind of really, I don't know, down, downsize, maybe yeah. not travel as much. Um, so yeah, he probably, yeah, I could see him totally, probably having some sort of uh, disagreement there with with Geigel. Yeah. The, the 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 big story was was he had the meeting with Vince, and by the time the meeting happened. Word had gotten around in the locker room because there, you know, there's no cell phones. It's yeah. all, you know, tele, it's 1983. There's, so it's all tele, telephone, telegram, telewrestler. By the time the meeting had taken place, Harley, you know, the, the, the locker room had found out that Vince and Harley had met. Yeah. And so it was, there was an awful snowstorm in the Carolinas. Um, yep. And Harley, or mo, on most of the East Coast, uh, into the Carolinas. Harley drove through the snowstorm from Connecticut all the way to, to, to Greensboro, shows up in the middle of the second or third match, and oh, everybody's really thinking, like, holy shit, what's he doing here? He just met with Vince, and then Harley kicks everybody out of the locker room and tells Dusty and Dusty Flair and uh, Jim Crockett, everyone, everyone out, I want you know a minute with, with you guys. And he pretty much looked at Flair and said, I'm here for you. Yeah, and then that was how he passed the torch. But had yeah. he had he taken that offer on Vin, up on Vince McMahon, um, the main event of Starcade '83 might not have ever happened. We might not be having this conversation about Starcades in and of itself. Yeah, and and I think another part of that too, in terms of if I, if if I'm to understand correctly, like Vince McMahon was making passes at these all these promoters to buy them out. Yep, and to go into business with them so that they keep, in his expansion. That might, may ha, that maybe that was what he was trying to do with Harley. I don't know. He may have not necessarily been interested in Harley Race as a top tier ticket performer. Yeah. He may have been more interested in the the land that our Harley ran. Yep. More than anything, um, and and through that Harley could be the the conduit for Vince McMahon. You know, he could open the door for Vince yeah. in Kansas City. Yep. And that's probably what that was. And, and you've of heard course, that story about Harley and uh, Harley pulling a gun out on Hogan, right? Yes, I've heard. Yeah, uh, the Harley race is one person I wish I and again I I did get to be within in, in the same room and with the arms like yeah yeah but he is one person that like to me like he's like I lo- I wish I could uh, could have ever sat down and like had a meaningful conversation not that I would ever have the chance to yeah but like that's to me that's like a wrestler's wrestler like My want, favorite he's like the door. He is the he is the door he is the forbidden door from <laughs> pun intended from the boom to the territories. He is the gatekeeper of that. Yeah, 
of to that time. Him frame. passing the torch to Flair at, eight in, at Starcade 83 is the equivalent of Andre doing it for Hogan at WrestleMania 3, in my opinion. Oh, definitely. Because of the impact that eventually Starcade and Flair would have on those future Starcade events. Because Flair headlined Starcade 84, 85, 86, 87, 88. Yep. Uh, 89. Um, he Five or six Starcades in a row following... He didn't do 90? 90. Uh, he did do 90. That's right. Against... Well, he was the Black Scorpion. Uh, you know. <laughs> it, it, count, it counts. It counts. But my favorite Harley Race story was at Starcade 93 when Flair was wrestling Vader. And Vader had a, had a tendency to... Um, if he had... If he was... If he was working with a guy he had never worked before, he used to like to test guys. Right. And Vader used to have the spot in the corner where he'd fucking take the gloves off and he'd fucking pepper the guy up in the chest and the body shots in the head. Yeah. And he and Harley's sitting in the corner and he knows what Vader's doing. Mm-hmm. And so he's like telling, he's like, Leon, lay off, lay off, Leon. And he's just fucking boom, 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 boom. So if you go back, and I, I, I heard this story once on Shivani's podcast on what happened when, but... So the referee does the the, 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 the break, right? Mm-hmm. He breaks it four, right? And he's scolding Vader. And Flair's, you know, taking a rest in the corner. And you see in the corner of the screen, Harley Race is kind of conversing with Flair. And to Tony Schiavone's credit, on commentary, he says, Harley Race is taunting Ric Flair after he just got the beating of his life from Ric Flair. Right, right. But what Harley Race told him was... If you don't start fighting back with Leon when we get to the dressing room, I'm going to beat the fuck out of you. I believe it. And so, so Flair, Flair takes, so then Vader comes back and Flair makes the big comeback and he gets a couple of live rounds in on Vader and Vader backed off. And yeah. Flair, Flair told that story once on his podcast yeah. and I think I read it in his book too. Yeah. Harley pretty much threatened his life. Harley Race, in, <laughs> to me, still is probably one of the toughest men in wrestling. Like I probably, like as a fan, again, never, never having seen the man wrestle live yeah. or in person or on a, like his career was over by the time I was ever a thought. Uh, that guy to me is is an OG of all different yeah. types in terms of yeah. what, what wrestling means. Eight-time world's champion when being the world's champion was the biggest deal. Yeah, absolutely. Luger here going for the rack. It looks like we got a victory. WCW on the board. We've been talking through a fair amount of these matches here. Um, But this is Lex Luger's victory for WCW. Um, They are now – they're only down one match. It's two to one. Um, I'll be honest with you, not a fan of the pairing with Jimmy Hart. I was not a fan – I didn't. I didn't really care for Jimmy Hart and Lex Luger as a pairing. Jimmy Hart, by this stage of his career, was just there. Yeah, he was there with Hogan. He was there with the Dungeon of Doom. He was. He was. He was not. He was just. He was go go out and be Jimmy Hart. Was yeah. His job. That you know, on top of getting Hogan his fucking Chinese food and yeah. and, and and doing his dry cleaning and yeah. you know and 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 make his real job at this, from what I understand, was not just to. He was Hogan's businessman. Yeah, and, he, and it wasn't just a favorite Hogan, but he also did produce a lot of the music. Yep. He was their Jim Johnson. Yeah, for you know during this time yep. frame. But again, like as a, he wasn't an appealing character that mattered to anybody at this point. I just, I mean, I, I've never been a fan of the Jimmy Hart Hulk Hogan babyface presentation. I didn't think that Hogan. I didn't feel like in, as a as a babyface. Hulk Hogan needed Jimmy Hart, nor like, and I, I correlated Jimmy Hart as being this little fucking weasel right, right, that right. Hogan used to toss around when he exactly. wrestled Earthquake. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then you put the two of them together, and you're just like, ah, eh, whatever. Um, 
But anyways, um, yeah, I wasn't really a big fan of the Sting, or I'm sorry, the Luger. Uh, didn't really, Jimmy it Hart. didn't really seem to make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, and, you know, like I said, Jimmy Hart was, they, you know, he had a role, he served his purpose, but he wasn't like it did. It wasn't like, oh my God, Luger's with Jimmy Hart. Like, yeah, or like in the same vein that we'd be thinking about that with Bobby Heenan or Paul Heyman today. Yeah, oh my God, he's got this guy, you know, toting him around. Like, no, it's, it's just, he's just there. So I wanted to read you some of the results of the very first Super Clash because we talked about it, you know, it was kind of like a, you said Jim Crockett really and Starcade was like Super Clash before the Super Clash. So mm-hmm. the very first Super Clash took place um, on September 28th, 1985 from mm-hmm. Comiskey Park. Yep. Uh, 20,347 were in that's attendance. Like, that's a good number. If it was F, it was uh, co-promoted by the National Wrestling Alliance, the AWA, and World Class mm-hmm. Championship Wrestling. Um Vern Gagne, Jim Crockett, um, both had had stated that the, the the live gate they made roughly over two hundred grand, um, <clears throat> yeah, I'm sure. which okay. sounds like a decent number for nineteen eighty. Oh, that is a good number. I'm just wondering if that's true or not. Yeah, but, well, I, I can see that twenty thousand. I know, I, I know that. that I know that from from doing some of my research that there was issues with the live gate and the the numbers over it, and eventually it led to. Some of Crockett's wrestlers getting pulled from being on AWA programming. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, it was 20,000 20, is a good number to draw at an arena today. Yeah. So to have that done, even though it was in a baseball stadium in 1985, is nothing to sneeze at. It's nothing bad. Yeah. yeah I mean, it, for a wrestling show, it's a good, it's 35 years ago or today, it's, yeah. it's a good number to draw unless it's at WrestleMania. So on this card, the opening match saw Steve Regal take on Brad Reagans, defeating him. For the Ooh, AWA cool World Light Heavyweight Championship. Like, that's a cool hidden nugget. Nice. Sherry Martel defeating Candy Devine uh, for the AWA World Women's Championship. Okay. Mil Mascaris defeating Buddy Roberts for the IWA World Heavyweight Championship. Okay. Greg Gagne, Scott Hall, and Kurt Henning defeating Ray Stevens, Nick Bockwinkel, and Larry Zabisco in a six-man Ooh, tag. That's like a fucking murderer's row of Hall of Famers. Yeah. Little Tokyo. Well, except for Greg Gagne. He no Hall of Famer. Sorry. That's fine. Um, Kimberly coming out with Johnny B. Bad. A a hidden gem in WCW, in my opinion. Yeah, I like Johnny B. Bad. Johnny B. Bad was the kind of guy that you put out there to, to, in the opening matches. He was a, I wouldn't say he was a utility player, but you could, you could put him in any situation and he, he got a good reaction from the audience. He was a solid wrestler who had a, brought an energy to a part of the show at any point you wanted to put him there. Where yeah. Like, it was his energy that he brought. Yeah, exactly. Even some of his in-ring work was pretty... pretty yeah, he wasn't a bad wrestler yeah. at all. I wouldn't say he was a bad wrestler. The NWA World Midget Championship. <laughs> Little Tokyo defeating Little T. <laughs> Little um, T. Jumbo Saruta, Giant Baba, and Tenru defeating Harley Race, Bill Irwin, and Scott Irwin. For the Asian Six-Man Tag Team Championship. I didn't know that was a thing. Okay. Um, so they were like, all right, Harley, you got to get these two guys over. And yeah. like, yeah, fine, whatever. Yeah. Because <laughs> that a- that Asian team is actually a pretty st- star-studded lineup. Uh, for, for Japanese wrestling standards, yes. Yeah. That's a Murderer's Row Hall of Fame right there for, for Japanese wrestling. Kerry Von Erich pinned Jimmy Garvin for the World Class Championship Wrestling Texas Championship. And then we had the Russian team of Krusher Kroshev, Ivan Koloff, and Nikita Koloff defeating the Crusher, 
Dick the Bruiser, and Baron Von Rasky for the NWA World Six-Man Tag Team that titles. Lot, right? Jerry Blackwell defeated Kamala in a $10,000 body slam match. Okay. The Road Warriors defeated the Fabulous Freebirds. Is that where they painted their face stars and bars? For the AWA yeah. World Tag Team Championship. Sergeant Slaughter defeating Boris Zukov in the AWA America's Championship. Rock and roll who? <laughs> no, that's, that's Buck Zuma. That's Buck Zuma. That yeah. trash, Buck Zuma. Yeah, fucking child molester. Um, I'm surprised. Well, I'm not surprised that this match. Actually, I'm kind of surprised that this match didn't main event. But Ric Flair defeated Magnum TA for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. And in the main event for the AWA World Heavyweight Championship, Rick Martel fought Stan Hansen to a double disqualification. You could see why. Just you could see why there were some issues there. Well, you could see. You could see why that didn't work out. Because how do you not main event Ric Flair versus Magnum TA? Well, I on mean, the, on the show that is to oppose WWE. This is the best of everybody else, and we're going to go after you, Vince. And we're going to put Rick Martel and Stan Hansen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That ex- well, that well, that, that's, that's all you need to know. And the funny thing is, is that Flair and Magnum went 19 minutes and 10 seconds. Martel and Hansen fought to a double DQ in two minutes and 30 seconds. Yeah. So that had to have been some a, shit was going down. Yeah, there was there was there was some some carny that's so stupid some carny shit going down. So that was the first AWA Super Clash. The second AWA Super Clash took place at the Cow Palace in San Francisco, California, with an attendance of two thousand eight hundred people. A far cry mm, from that twenty thousand that they did in Comiskey. Killed Park. the concept. Rick Martel and Stan Hansen. Yeah, pretty much. So on that card, now. This was pretty much AWA and I believe um, NWA or World Class. World Class, yeah. There was no, there was no, no NWA involvement after no this. No thanks. Um, this this show took place uh, May second, nineteen eighty seven. So they skipped the a year. They skipped a year, okay. Okay, and so you had Sheik Adnan Al Kasi, which mm-hmm. would better be known as General Adnan in the WWF, defeated Buck Zumoff. DJ Peterson wrestled Super Ninja to a time limit draw. Sherry Martel defeated Medusa Micelli for the Ooh, World Women's cool. AWA Championship. Kurt Henning defeated Nick Bockwinkel for the AWA Heavyweight Championship. Okay. The Midnight Rockers, Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty, and Ray Stevens defeated Buddy Wolf, Doug Summers, and Kevin Kelly. What? Yeah. Ray Stevens and the Rockers? That's kind That's of a... That's a fucking party. Yeah. Um, Jerry Blackwell. Should have just set up a table and let the three of those guys have a party in the ring. <laughs> yeah, just do a line, of those three lines guys. of coke. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jerry Blackwell defeated Boris Zukov, and in the main event, Jimmy Snuka and Russ Francis defeated the terrorist and the mercenary. All right, I guess you don't want to do super clashes anymore. <laughs> well, they did a third one. Oh God, what was the attendance of that one? Um, let me get to it here. It can't be more than the last. This one. was in 1988 at the UIC Pavilion in Chicago. Uh, representing uh, in this super clash was the AWA and World Class and um, Memphis, CWA. This show did 1,672 people um, with a buy rate of 45,000 homes. Um, Let's see what the results here. Is this the Kerry Von Erich one? I think this is the Kerry Von Erich, Jerry Lawler one. Um, Chavo Guerrero, Mondo Guerrero, and Hector Guerrero defeated Cactus Jack and the Rock and Roll RPMs of Mike Davis and Tommy Lane. Okay. Uh, Eric Embry defeated Jeff Jarrett for the WCWA World Light Heavyweight Championship. Jimmy Valiant defeated Wayne Bloom in 24 seconds. Iceman King Parsons defeated Brickhouse Brown for the Texas Heavyweight Championship. 
Wendy Richter and the Top Guns, Ricky Rice and Derek Dukes defeated Bad Company, Paul Diamond and Pat Tanaka and Medusa Micelli with Diamond Dallas Page in their corner. Okay. Greg Gagne defeated Ron Garvin by a countout for the AWA International TV Championship. The Syrian Terrorist defeated Bambi, Peggy Lee Leather, Lori Lynn, Brandy May, Malibu, Nina Pocahontas, and Luna Vachon in a street fight lingerie battle. That sounds like a stripper. <laughs> Sergeant Slaughter defeated Colonel De Beers in a boot camp match. The Samoan SWAT team, Samu and Fatu with Buddy Roberts, defeated Michael Hayes and Steve Cox for the WCWA World Tag Team Championship. Wahoo and Daniel defeated Manny Hurt Fernandez in an Indian strap match. Jerry Lawler defeated Kerry Von Erich due to referee stoppage in a title unification match for the AWA and World Class Championship. And the main event, the Rock and Roll Express, Ricky Morton and Robert Gibson fought the stud stable, Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golden to a double disqualification. Ooh. Yeah, so. That Safe to say the, those super clashes. Uh, We're not super. Yeah, not very super at all. Um, so, I wanted to, you know, let's have a little fun here as we're watching this. Um, you know, this is 1995. This is the, the OG Forbidden Door, as we have claimed, between WCW and New Japan Pro Wrestling. Share with me, you know, off the top of your head, some, you know, in, in, a, in a dream world, if you will, some Forbidden Door wrestling matches of 1995 out include the WWF with WCW. Let's say WWF and WCW forbidden door fantasy matchups of 1995. Well, I think I always wanted to see Hogan and Brett in the 90s. I got, yeah, that's one so I got. I probably want, or Sting and Brett. Brett and anybody, really. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's a Hogan and Brett, Sting and Brett, I like those. Taker and Sting was obviously, well, not in 1995. I wasn't really clamoring for that one yet. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to think of who the uh, the because '95 is pretty it's a pretty lean year for the WWF. Um, Shawn Michaels, Ric Flair. <clears throat> oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Or you know this is, and again these don't have I these are. I didn't think of these in advance. But yeah, yeah, maybe, no, I threw this you out. You know, would be a good one, a good banger of a match. British Bulldog and Arn Anderson, I think, would be a fun match. That would be a fun um, match. Yeah, I think those two guys would have would have would have brought it. Um, I mean, Luger having just left there, there's no real forbidden door element yeah. to him. Yeah. Um, I think I'm, I'm like also thinking like in like terms too, like. Jerry Lawler versus like Bobby Heenan in some sort of like stupid gimmicky match. Things they were kind of both like the, the heel, heel commentators. Yeah, um, you could see something like that. Um, what else was going on in 1995? Mabel was a big deal at that point. Won the King of the Ring. You could probably put him in there with somebody on the WCW side. Um, I mean, you're probably like another big guy. Yeah, probably. I mean, I'm trying to think of who they would have. I mean, fuck the Yate or the, the giant. giant. I mean, yeah, could have done something with that, or like you know, Mabel and his in his you know Mo and all those guys. Men on a mission. Yeah, they, I'm against the Dungeon of Doom, maybe. Hmm. Um, what else? What else? I mean, Yokozuna and the Giant, I think, would have been a, a big ticket. Yeah. Um, fuck Owen Hart against 
Sting, Owen yeah. Hart against Macho Man, yeah. uh, Owen Hart against Juice or Thunder Liger, Owen yeah. Hart against Chris Benoit. Yeah, that would have been good, some good stuff. Um, yeah. Eddie Guerrero. Yeah. Like, Owen Hart would have really checked all the... Brian Pillman. Uh, flying Brian, I should say. Um, Bret Hart and Benoit. Bret Hart and Benoit. Uh, Bret Hart really, I think, would have covered about... You could have put him with anybody. He would yeah. have been a very interchangeable guy. He didn't necessarily have to be the main event. Yeah. Uh, like I said, his my dream match with him and Hogan at this time frame wouldn't have necessarily been a must-have because you could have, if you were building a card, because I think you could have put Brett against Hogan as much as you could have put Brett against Liger. You yeah. know what I mean? So that's that's how that's that's how good Brett was. And you could say the same for Sean, too. Uh-huh. Um, gosh, let me think. Who else? Um, uh, Undertaker against the entire Dungeon of Doom, considering that most of Undertaker's career... Was early on that time frame was all about slaying the dragons and yeah, the and the, yeah. and the different monsters. You him put the giant, you know, God, put him in there with the you know the giant, the shark, Kamala, the Zodiac. Man, you know, nineteen ninety five, Hunter Hearst Helmsley's in the game still, so you could probably put him in the ring with. Uh, I mean, like a Johnny B. Bad. They did that later in ninety six. Yeah, um, as we see, Johnny B. Bad getting the victory due to the the. The disqualification over the top rope. You can't throw your opponent over the top rope. Which seemed to be a convenient rule that they like to throw out there every once in a while when yeah. it, when they needed a, 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 a safe booking. Yeah. You know? It was never something that was consistently followed. Look, I would, I don't mind a rule like that if like you maybe had a division or a title centered around something a little bit more... Combat yes. oriented. Yes. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Where like it only happened in those matches yeah. where like it was established in this match, here are the rules. You know like I, I mean? hated I hated the the and I think I've told I've told you this, but when Bill Watts was, you know, during his tenure in WCW a few years prior to this, Bill Watts had implemented the no moves off the top rope. Yet there was a light heavyweight division where yeah. you had a flying Brian and yeah. a and a, a, a Jushin Liger and all these guys that you know the, uh, the the biggest the big appeal of that division was the top rope maneuvers. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then you you know Watts tried to to rationalize it like oh well you got to find a way to creatively you know do the move without the referee seeing. Like, I mean I understand that logic, but that is so that's a that's a that's a small lane to operate in. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then the more you do that, then the more silly it fucking gets. And oh, yeah. If you, keep, if you keep breaking the rules, then what the fuck do the rules matter? You yeah. know what I mean? So. Oh, I know. It's crazy. So, you know, why why, why use that? Why why lean on that over the, oh, and hide the, um, the ability to have an entertaining performance where mm-hmm. you can jump off the top rope and it not yeah. be a big deal? So, yeah. That, I mean, as it showed to be a, a dumb idea. Now, also on this card as we're watching this, there's... A triangle match between Sting, Lex Luger, and Ric Flair. And the winner of that match will go on to face Randy Savage for the WCW World Heavyweight title in the main event of this show. So some of these guys were doing double duty. Sting and Luger both were doing double duty. Randy Savage also not only defending his title in the main event, but he's also part of that WCW team. What's your take on having some of these guys do double duty, do you think it was necessary to put a guy like a Sting and a Savage and a Luger on multiple times on this card? Or could WCW have picked other individuals for this World Cup team or whatever I think, to lighten the load for some of these other guys? So I think I think they're just trying to play the get get the 
have their cake and eat it too. Like yeah. those are some big top flight Japan guys. So you got to give them big flight, top flight WCW guys. Mm-hmm. But to me, like to me, the purpose of maybe putting someone in a, in multiple matches on a show to me needs to have, or at least historically, when it's done correctly, it really puts over that wrestler who's wrestled more than one night. Yeah. Um, a, an example, a prime example, being Bret Hart at WrestleMania ten. Mm-hmm. You had the match with Owen. He wrestled Yoko. There was that storyline over the course of the show overcoming that odds. Mm-hmm. Daniel Bryan, WrestleMania 30, same thing. One small nugget of, a, of one that really won me over as a fan was NXT TakeOver New Orleans. Adam Cole. Yep. He had the ladder match. To me, the best multi-man non-tag team ladder match the WWE's ever put on. That ladder match at TakeOver. That was awesome, yeah. Amazing I, I, ladder yes. match. One of my favorite matches yes. I've ever watched live. Yeah. Um, That's right, you were there for that. And that, that was such an excellent match. And he won it. To yep. become the first North American champion. But then he also wrestled later in the night as for the tag team titles where Roderick Strong joined the Undisputed Era. And just seeing what That it was did, done because of the injury to Bobby Fish, though. Yes. That wasn't the original idea. Right, but, but what it did was it solidified Adam Cole having gone through that ladder match and then going through and winning the tag team titles made you go, wow, like, he's a fucking big-time player. Yep. And then I also remembered that weekend which wasn't on camera and wasn't a part of a storyline, but I grew to like Adam Cole even more, is they were doing championship turn- title NXT title tournaments at Fan Access, WrestleMania. I do remember that, yeah. And Adam Cole had to wrestle in those matches as the champions of those two titles. Right. So, like, and that came to me after TakeOver. I'm like, oh my God. I think, they wrestle- did, I think, if I'm not mistaken, they aired those live on the network. They may have, but they weren't, like, storyline-oriented necessarily. You know what I mean? They no. We apologize. There was a little technical glitch here as uh, my, my system had gone out on us. So right now, we are curr- I paused the recording uh, for this next match. This is the Shinjiro Otani match against Eddie Guerrero. So we are currently at 1 hour, 3 minutes, and 34 seconds. I'm going to do a quick countdown, press play, and uh, we'll be on our way. And we'll get back to what we were talking about with Adam Cole in just a minute. So in 3, 2, 1, hit play. Now, you were saying, sorry about so, that. So, yeah, no, to go around the block to just walk across the street, I'll say that, like, it was when, to me, like, when a guy does double duty like that, even if it's unintentional, I grow to respect that wrestler more mm. and kind of have more of an investment in that guy. And yeah. Adam Cole did that that weekend, even though it wasn't highlighted, even though it wasn't like a Daniel Bryan or a Bret Hart, it was like, mm-hmm. that guy's a real fucking wrestler. And that's, yeah. that guy deserves to, to the acclaim that he, or the push that could come with that. So to, to again to walk across the street around the block, that's how I perceive doing double duty, especially because you're talking about wrestling and the risk that the physical risk it, it takes yeah. to double that risk is there's gotta be some sort of intention to it. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're putting the card together, you're booking, yeah. in my opinion at least. I think what do I know about my, it? My my guess is, and I could be wrong, but my the intention behind putting Savage and Sting and Luger um Having them all do double duty, um, and even you know, eventually even Flair um, was to kind of build the the disadvantage that WCW was was having in this series of matches with New Japan. Right. I think you could probably argue that, and I didn't even think, really think of that. Now, wait, did Flair wrestle another match other than? And that's probably so the re- intention. So Flair wrestled the triangle match to then eventually get to Savage in the main event in the singles match. See, to me, like. That doesn't make sense. Like, where's the intention? You know what I mean? Other than maybe what you're saying. Because to me, the intention would be like, maybe Flair doesn't wrestle in a triangle match or something. Or maybe Savage has to wrestle. Like, 
where is the dis, where is the disadvantage? Where is I do the remember overcoming the, adversity? I do remember the build being um, because like, where's the story? Sting and Luger had that on-screen friendship, and then Luger kind of had that alliance with Jimmy Hart and the Dungeon of Doom. I guess you could say he was like a de facto member of the group. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And so the the build up into that matchup was was can Sting and Luger coexist or like can Sting trust Luger? Like it's a triangle match for a shot at the title later in the night, and Flair was just kind of left. Flair was playing third wheel. Right, right, right. In the build up to that, and that made while him at the same time Flair also had his issues with Savage. Yeah, and I think, but to me, to me that muddies the waters. Like to me, I would have done it differently, where maybe. Either Flair doesn't have to wrestle, and they're you know maybe the title's defended in a triangle match to mm-hmm. face Flair. Yeah, and their story could be played out with Savage trying to Savage is the champ get to this. Flair. Yeah, yes. I, again, just spit yeah, all yeah, over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I you know what you're saying. But I, I just there. It sounds like they just they made sure to get everyone two matches to make it even, and that's not interesting. And so yeah. you know what I mean, where they could have maybe stacked a deck against Savage. But, uh, Thank you. A perfect example of wrestling multiple times one night. Savage at WrestleMania. WrestleMania four. four like, yeah. That's, that's like the first time. That's like the blueprint. Can, yeah. That. Versus yeah. DiBiase only having to wrestle twice. Yeah. Like before facing Savage. Yep. So again, though that's a story being told. Yeah. Where I feel like they were probably like, let's make sure everybody wrestles twice so we don't, you know, piss somebody off. Yeah. And make it fair. Like, mm, it would have been a cooler story if maybe that didn't happen that. Yeah, maybe one person was at a disadvantage wrestling twice, where someone maybe had the advantage wrestling once. I only say these things because that's what we've been exposed to as fans, and that's a logic that makes sense to me. So. <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. Um, yeah, it's not. It's it, it was what it was. I mean, that if if there's anything that I could nitpick about this show, I think it was them shoehorning like that into the the World yeah, Cup concept, right? You know? Right. Like, if they just did, like, the seven matches for the World Cup, it would have been fine. But I think also, too, they were trying to compete. You know, they, they were trying to, I mean, they were competing with the WWF on their, on their television programming. And I think it probably would have, I, I, I'm just guessing here, but knowing what we do know about the ins and outs of the Monday Night Wars... I'm guessing that they, they wanted to put the world champion in a world championship match on their pay-per-view uh, because to, to oppose what the WWF was doing Yeah, at that and time. Here's an idea that would have been cool um, that, that just came to me. like what? Because to me, the best of seven stuff where you like tally, that to me is a little bit anticlimactic. Mm-hmm. Cause like, well, no. I want to talk to you about a best of seven in a minute, but go right. ahead. But to me, like keeping score like that to me is irrelevant. Like I know WWE's been doing it with the Survivor Series, and I don't fucking care because like you're gonna you're gonna find a way to make it come down to the last match. Yeah, where like that's not like well, you can actually, start you can start predicting. I will say though they, they they did that a couple of times, but then there were also times where they they there was a couple of years when they did the Raw and SmackDown head to head at those Survivor Series where there was one year where it went to seven matches, and you know they they had a good little build up. Um, but then there was another year where, like, they Someone. were keeping score, but it didn't. By I think like one of the two Raw or SmackDown had already won four matches out of the seven. Yeah, yeah. Yet they were still keeping track of like the match. Like, yeah, so, and like, there's a part of that that just isn't interesting to me. So yeah, that's why. Like to me, I would if I, if we could maybe like reimagine this for a second. Like, say you don't talk, you don't keep score, and say the winners 
of the matches advance to a title match later in the night. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's the WCW World Title or like the United States Title. Well, I would have yeah. said I, I would say like maybe like the WCW World Title just to make it interesting to the United States audience, and then mm-hmm. you have the New Japan Champion defending his title in a straight up match. Yeah, yeah. So like, there's appeal to all of that and let me just to break it out a little bit if all these matches are the winners of these matches will advance tonight to face the wcw world champion and you know that could you know that could be a seven way or a six way right Mm -hmm. and then later in the night also included in the card is whoever the new japan world champion is facing lex luger Mm -hmm. oh my god lex luger could take the world title from japan and bring it to wcw and those are little hooks that could make it interesting on top of the brand warfare if you will or the world cup element of it yeah where i feel like those things are it doesn't end when someone won four matches yeah it's still it, it goes throughout the whole night there's there's you know, stakes and, throughout the yeah yeah and like i said like if a, otani beats guerrero and he gets to be included in the match well it's not likely he's gonna win if you've done it properly it's still interesting Mm-hmm. And you can still kind of have that element of like, oh, like maybe he'll win. Just like, oh, maybe Lex Luger will win the yeah. New Japan Championship. Interesting. So things like that. Yeah. Again, where it's not, you're not shoehorning yourself into keeping score and tallying and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. Because it's definitely, that's to me very like, that's very like narrow. Yeah, I will say that, um, you know, the, the, the outcome of this seven ser- best of seven series with, you know, WCW New Japan... We saw Sting and the W. Well, I'm not gonna spoil it, but anyways, the winners. Oh, well, fuck it, whatever. It was 1995. 1995. Yeah. People, people know by now. People know by now. Yeah. Um, Sting and the WCW team. They walked out with a trophy, but there was nothing following that. Like WCW didn't award them with like, all right, you get this title shot, then you get this title right, shot. Right, you know right. what I mean? Like, oh, you you you're in the cruiserweight division, you're gonna get a shot at the cruiserweight. Title. You know, yeah, things no, like that. Thanks for representing WCW. Yeah, take, yeah. bringing home the trophy for. You know what I mean? Like, it was, like, for instance, I'll go back to, it was a Survivor Series one year. Um, and, I forgot, what year was it? Talking about the match for Survival? No, not that, no, not the match for Survival. There was a Survivor Series event, I think it was in 2004. Yeah, it was in 2004. The main event was, like, Triple H... Batista, Snitsky, and Edge against like Jericho, Benoit, Orton, and I think it was Maven. Okay. And if rather forgettable main event, it sounds yeah. Like and the winning team got to control Monday Night Raw for thirty days because Bischoff decided he had had enough and he was taking a vacation because he was sick of the inmates it's running the asylum. And so like. Each week there was a different theme. So like Maven had the first week because the baby faces won. So Maven got a title shot at Triple H. And then this guy got a title shot the next week at Triple H. So it was like if they I thought that was kind of interesting. That is pretty cool. That like the like the 30 days, like, oh for 30 days, you know, we're gonna and then it it, it in within that 30 days of somebody different controlling Monday Night Raw each week, it Stuff, stuff. I don't even remember what happened, but things transpired to where it called for Bischoff to come back and and you know take back the the, the throne, if you will, and, yeah, and, yeah. and get things under control. You know, yeah. I think it, I think that eventually that set up the um, that elimination chamber in Puerto Rico. 
Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a finish to a match, then the winner was supposed to face Hunter or something, and there was like a, I think it was like a battle royal finish, and like that both the one guys where Edge cashed in. So that was oh, that was oh, that was oh five. Oh six was when he cashed in on Cena. So oh five was oh five into oh six. Yeah. So wait, they had they had, they they were in Puerto Rico back to back years. No, they were in Puerto Rico the first year when they had the vacant world title. Shawn Michaels was the referee. They were okay. building up Batista with so him that, and Hunter. So that Edge Chamber match wasn't in Puerto Rico? That cash No. Okay. That, that was in sense. Albany. Okay. Okay. That, that was sense. in Albany got in 06. Got it. Got it. Yep. Um, that makes sense. Because they did the sack celebration the next day. Yeah. Yep. So there was the, there was this, uh, what would he call it? So there were, you know, there were, there was issues with um, the finish of a battle royal. The winner was supposed to face Hunter and then. They decided that I think it was going to be a triple threat, and then there was some sort of finish there that fucked it all up. So then, like, Bischoff came back and was like, I'm stripping you of the title, and we're going to put it up against all these guys in the Elimination Chamber. And that's how they eventually built up to him and Batista again. Oh, nice German suplex there by um, an Otani. That's a, that's a, and, but that's cool because guess what? As we talked about it earlier, like, you've got that December period where it's kind of like, eh, like, we got to find a way to make it interesting. Okay. Like, someone's, these guys are in control of Monday Night Raw for the next yeah. 30 days. Like, that makes yeah. it interesting. Yeah. You know what I mean? That make that gives you something to, like, oh, okay, we have to kind of check out what that's going to look like as mm-hmm. a fan. So that's cool. That's, see, that's interesting. Yeah. They should I, bring that back. I, as we're watching this match, Eddie Guerrero and Otani, um, I saw a post on Facebook. Somebody asked the question, uh, and I wanted your take on it. Um, does Eddie Guerrero – did Eddie Guerrero have any classic matches in WCW aside from – his matches with Mysterio, and I don't know if something that that's, that you remember that you could. I really probably can't recall any. Yeah, I probably. Uh, I I I'm sure there are. I just can't recall any. Yeah, I'm sure he had some bangers with Dean Malenko. Dean Malenko, yeah. He had a fucking fantastic match with Jericho at the Fall Brawl '97 pay per view. Yeah, I'm trying to think of where he else. won the cruiserweight title from Jericho. Didn't, it was a fucking banger. Do I only just remember the match because he wrestled six at sold out? Was that a good match? Was that a ladder match? It was a ladder match. Yeah. I don't remember if it was good or not. Yeah, maybe I just remember because it was six. Yeah. Um, but I don't. I, yeah, those. I. I yeah, I can. I couldn't tell you. I, I, not a clue. We know what I. Do. We talked about this earlier, and it just kind of came to me now as we're watching this match. But, um, if you notice, there is some international representation in WCW's contingent. Um, against the New Japan team. Eddie Guerrero from Mexico, Chris Benoit from Canada, mm-hmm. Alex Wright from Germany. Yep. Um, it's, it's funny that I just stumbled upon that right now without, you know, as we talked well, about it a few minutes If you remember, prior. and I remember wanting to get the video game, but they had the game, video game WCW versus the World. Yeah. Remember they came On out Nintendo 64, yeah. yeah I, don't, I never played it, never got a chance to get it, but I always thought, like, probably in somewhat in connection to this, I was like, that's so cool. Like, that's what this is. This is WCW. Well, not even versus the world. It's versus Japan. But it's WCW yeah. versus... It's, it's brand warfare. It's yeah. like world warfare. World mm-hmm. Cup in, insinuating, even though like it's a worldly thing. Like It doesn't have that international flavor. Like you know, Glad we're kind of talking about this now, but like I remember reading or seeing a, a TikTok 
of an interview Triple H did where he kind of laid out his vision for NXT like going forward. Like, yes, he's got NXT right now. They're going to bring back, they're going to do the NXT Europe and NXT South Africa, just like hypotheticals. Australia, Lucha. He was trying to create his own territory system within his developmental. He, he had made that, he had, he had pitched that at a, um, at a business partners meeting pre-COVID. But the I way- I remember that. And that was cool. Um, and I look forward to that. Hopefully that, that's, that's starting to make, make its way back. But he had talked about the comparisons of it, and he said, "Like, look, Raw and SmackDown is the NFL. Raw's the AFC, SmackDown's the NFC. Red and blue, just for mm-hmm. comparisons. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's it's the mass appeal shows. Everybody knows that they're on, whether or not they're watching or not. Yeah. And obviously, we hope they're watching. <clears throat> but NXT, when all these brands pop up, that's college football, where you've got your American fan base, and let's just call that the SEC conference. You know mm-hmm. what I mean?" Where you've got your Georgia Bulldogs, your Alabama Crimson Tide, right? Yep. And NXT Europe is the ACC, Duke, Carolina, Miami, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Where like you have these local fans who are watching that territory. Yep. That are where it's a little bit more of a geographical loyalty to that area, to that brand. Yeah. And then every year, he even used the phrase. He's like, every year, maybe one year it's going to be in Australia, but we'll do the World Cup. The NXT World Cup, where there is that type of warfare that takes place where the best of these programs can come together and, you know, there is that type of element that we can introduce to, yeah. to it, which I, again, we're probably several years away from it, but I look forward to that because it does also mirror, like you said, the territories, the NWA, like NXT is the new NWA, yep. while Raw and SmackDown is the WWE, yeah. you know what I mean? And you can, how a wrestler is presented and operates in, in the WWE versus NXT is completely different. different you know yeah. what I mean? Yep. And, you know, you can hop around. Yeah. And that element I like. I think that's cool. And I do look forward to hopefully seeing that get kind of actualized. I think, I think <clears throat> obviously, like you said, that's something that they had planned on and they were in the going in that direction. Right. Pre-COVID. Um, you know, they had to shut down the, the UK territory. I think they're rebranding it to, to more NXT Europe. But, yeah. you know... Eventually, we'll see India, India and uh, maybe you know uh, uh, Latin America or yeah. Mexico. Um, Definitely, you know. I think the Canadian wrestlers might end up getting lumped into North America, so you might see you know NXT North America uh, things like that. Um, as we see Otani getting the victory over Eddie Guerrero, which brings them up, I think three to two, if mm-hmm. I'm not mistaken. Yeah, three to two. So we got a few more matches of this best of seven series to go. Um, on the subject of nice dropkick on the subject of best of seven series I just recently watched the episode of Dark Side of the Ring with Magnum TA the Magnum TA story I don't know if you caught that or not I have not Um, and they talked about the best of seven series with him and Nikita Koloff which I had not seen those matches I do remember um, reading about them in the magazines Mm -hmm. in the after mags if I'm not mistaken I once had an aftermag uh, that um, had the two of them on the cover. And I took the cover of the magazine and in our grandfather's house when I was a kid. I'm not sure if you remember, but I used to have a cardboard like fort, like a house. I turned it into my house. And I took pictures from the wrestling magazines and I slapped them on. I can't say I remember. Uh, But before I continue that story, I'm going to play the audio here for this Randy Savage promo because I'm sure it's pretty interesting. We are at 1 hour, 20 minutes, and 47 seconds. To think about, Tenzon, 
perhaps now in the international competition, and then after that, the triangle match. Forget about the triangle match. One thing at a time. The pressure's on me, and then hopefully the pressure's on Sting. To infinity and beyond. Three to two, our backs against the door. You know what? I like being the underdog. I've been the underdog all my life, but that's okay. That's cool. And the Stinger, he's cool too. And you know what? I gotta admit something. Lex Luger, he put that guy in the torture rack. You know, it's a team type situation. And then it reverses itself to infinity and beyond. Breaking on through to the other side. I like that. I got chills up and down my spine. I'm wrapped into the moment. This is a moment in time. And I'm going to take advantage of it. Tens on. You can't understand what I'm saying. But I'm coming to get you. Yeah. I just got off the telephone just moments ago with the suspended... Hulk Hogan, what did he, he, he wanted to know what frame of mind you were in. Tell him I'm in the zone. He knows what the zone's all about. That's what makes us different. That's what makes Sting different. That's what makes Lex Luger different. And difference is that it's three to two. And I'm going in there to even the score. Sting, ah, be there for the USA, red, white, and blue. Yeah, I'm out of here. I can't say it all Thank you very much. Uh, the Macho Man Randy Savage is going into his matchup oh, with Tenzan yeah. as uh, <laughs> New Japan leads 3-2. to two. Right on, let's get and you back he doesn't even the flinch. Like when, when, when Savage jumped back in for that last part, like no, he didn't he, even flinch. Yeah. Well, he's a pro. Yeah. I mean, Oklahoma, Oklahoma was the best. The, the, the best stick man. He had a, he had a, um, a Jim Morrison Doors reference. He had a yeah. Toy Story reference in there. Savage mm-hmm. was all over the place. Oh, yeah. Um, but back to what I was saying before uh, I allowed myself to be rudely interrupted by Randy Savage. What was I talking about again? Best of sevens. Best of sevens, yeah. So I, I didn't watch. So I, I had the cover of the after mag with Nikita and Magnum, and I had it like uh, taped to the the wall of this cardboard fort that I had. Right. Um, I had never seen any of these matches uh, up until recently. Uh, um, I was kind of going through YouTube. There, there's not you can't find many of them on the network or on the on the Peacock. Um, a lot of these matches took place not at non-televised events, but not on their main television show, which was World Championship Wrestling at that time in 1986. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you said earlier that you know you weren't really big on like those best of seven type matches. Um, more recently, uh, in 2023, you know I've been watching a lot of 1998. Uh, Monday Night Raw and Monday Nitro, and even some of the Thunders. And that was during a period of time where Booker T and Chris Benoit yep. had their best of seven series, which to this day they still hold as some great matches. Right, right. Great matches. Um, tell me why you're not a huge fan of best of sevens, and uh, what was your take on those Booker T, Chris Benoit matches? I thought they were good matches. Don't get me wrong. I just don't like the predictability of it in the sense that, like, I don't know. Like you're gonna make one guy get swept by the other. Like the, I feel like you're you you. There's just less. Like it's a very predictable story to tell. Like and unless you are intentionally trying to you know maybe illustrate the dominance of one wrestler over the other. Mm-hmm. But you know, and in this one, just kind of you know, in expl- explaining this comes to me. Um, you know, I feel like I saw like an interview. You know. You know, in, the, in recent years, where Stephanie McMahon, you know, uh, talks about the appeal of WWE versus sports, and she says there's no routes in WWE. 
there's no routes in what we do. You know, everything's exciting. Mm-hmm. And I know she's she's fluffing that up, but like yeah, yeah. Why? So so to that point, there's no. Why would you intentionally make something a route? Like, does that is that effective? Occasionally, yes, but um, I don't know. I just feel like it's a very um, it's a very I don't know. It's just predictable, and it becomes less about the matches. I feel like than it does about like keeping score. Okay, and um, that's just again, I'm in the minority in this. I don't. That's why, like, it just doesn't matter to me what it is, as long as they're just. Oh, you make a good point in terms of predictability. Um, like, why would you want to make it less than seven? You know what I mean. If you if you write it and control it, you know what I mean. Because as we're watching this, this is Tenzan and Randy Savage. Randy Savage is the WCW World Champion. Do you really think on WCW's home turf that they're going to have their World Champion lose to an outsider? Right. You know. Right. And exactly. And the, even more and, so, and even the placement on the card. Because if they lose this match, then they lose the competition. Yeah. So it's like now you know he's not losing. Even yeah. double. The, you know, that's just added to what you just said. Like, if you put Sa- like, let's say if you put the first match on, it was Liger and Benoit. Liger got the win. But then they put Savage on second. That makes sense. Okay. And then Savage is the first one to get WCW on the board as yeah. opposed to being the one to save them. Right. Like, he's like, now he's in that position. I mean, I get it from a position where, you know, his character, the stature of his character is kind of. He's a big deal, so of course they're going to bring in the big guns for the clutch situation towards the end. Yeah, you know what I mean. I get that, that. but at the same time, did they really need to put him in this position, given the fact that he's the world champion? Right. You know, you could have put him on second, Mm -hmm. and then you could have taken someone like I don't know Johnny B. Bad, or or even Luger. Mm -hmm. You know, and put Luger in that role as Luger's the one that's that that saves. You know, WCW from getting eliminated and forcing it to go to a seventh and final match, you know? Right, right. So, the, I, I, from looking at it as we're watching it and having this discussion, I totally get and understand um, why you would, wouldn't be a fan necessarily. And I think also, too, it's one of those concepts where it's got to be done with the right guys and there's got to be the right story involved for it to, to, to be intriguing and for it to work. Um, like in more recent years, they've done like what was it NXT? They had Adam Cole and Johnny Gargano, and they did a series of matches. Two but they they did the, the two out of three falls match, and then they did the straight up singles match, yep. Takeover Thirty, and then they did a a three stages of hell match where there was different um, gimmicks within that match and stuff like that. So they didn't drag it out yeah, all the way to seven right. matches. Two out of three falls is a little bit more forgivable because it's only three falls. And if you lost two nothing, it's not like there's a story to tell there. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Where like you're not like, oh my God, now we got three more of these matches, four or five more of these matches. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, again, it, it, it's, it's, it's the acceptable, in my opinion, it's the more acceptable application of the story that you want to tell in a series Mm-hmm. A tallied series of matches, a best of. You know what I mean? It's just too long. I mean, I go, I go. Also, revert back to um, in a, on the AEW side, the the Death Triangle and Elite best of seven matches, um, where I, I I paid attention and watched them all. I mean, they were exciting to watch. You know, 
couple of them were pretty much the same. Sure. But they had they there was there was different matches and different elements. They I, I'll give them credit. They tried to keep some kind of continuity in terms of what story they were trying to tell mm-hmm. within those matches. Where sure. a couple of them were the same, but the finishes were similar because they had used I think like a hammer in one of them, and they tried to use it. You know, they went back to that tool right. to try to elevate the story, and then eventually as the matches went forward, um, and I think the elite were down like three to three zero or something like that. They tried to add that sports centric feel with um, Tony Khan buying rights to that the the NBA on NBC theme music, you yeah. know. Um, but that's and, even like another thing, like three zero, like like okay, you tell me you're gonna get swept, like you know what I mean. Now we're gonna play the comeback story, which is fabricated in this arena versus yeah. the real sports. Event, yeah, you know what I mean. But I, but uh, the one thing I am, I, uh, I'm happy that they didn't go with was the predictable route that the elite won, and after being down three zero, right. and doing the big comeback to take the whole series, you know, right. like they they came close and they lost to Death Triangle in that that trio ladders. Did match. they get to seven? They got to seven, which yeah. was the trio ladders match. They held it at the Forum in L.A. Right. They made sure that they did it in like the California area mm-hmm. because it was a big. It's a big. It's a home for the the, the Bucks. And for Lucha, you know, and I watched the series, and the matches were fun. I'm not going to sit here and I'm not going to sit here and knock AEW, you know, like a lot of people. Um, I, I will point out the criticism, things I don't like about it, which has the tendency to rub some people the wrong way. Right. But um, I will say that I do think that when it came to laying out the series, um, I appreciated the effort and how they did it. it sure. Didn't, it, it didn't seem like. It didn't seem like we got all the same matches in the, in the series, right? And, and that's incredibly hard to do. So and there yeah. was also the story the, the story that they were trying to tell, not only of the, the 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 series of matches between these two teams, but the elite just coming back. Andrew Morales, I think, doing commentary there. Uh, you might I be looked, correct. Yeah, I think that I don't know who the other guy was, but that looked like Pedro Morales with him. I do remember WCW at one point did have a Spanish announcers team mm-hmm. um, that they were, they they were, uh, which was beneficial to them because a lot of their stars, you know, were from the lucha libre uh, realm. But um, the idea of the elite just coming back after the CM Punk debacle from the from the All Out event, right. and the story of like, are they still a great trio? You right. know, going into this best of seven series, can they still? You know, that was the appeal of the 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 three losses that they suffered. Mm-hmm. It, you know, three in a row um, was. Do these guys still got it? You know, they haven't teamed together in a while. So I appreciated the continuity and the effort in that sense. For as much as I have a tendency to be very critical of what AEW does, um, there's times like that where I can appreciate that that continuity and the effort that they put in right. to making that, that, that story um, somewhat watchable. As Savage coming up from the top rope here, this, this is probably going to be it right here, I would imagine. Uh, oh, I thought he was going to kick Yeah, him. same. One, two, three, and yep. Savage. Evens it up. He saves it, and we go to a seventh match here. Um, between, uh, I, who's it, Sting and who's he wrestling? Kensuke Sasaki. Kensuke Sasaki, yes. Which, I, if I'm not mistaken, I believe he was the WCW United States Champion at this time. He was. So That's why I was mixing up that Bash of the Beach match earlier when we were talking oh, about Oh, okay. That. All right. I got you. I got you. 
So right now, here's what I'm going to do is Randy Savage and uh, Tenzon have ended their match. I'm going to pause it here at one hour, 32 minutes, 42 seconds and pause it as they're showing the replay of Randy Savage. We're going to do a quick little bathroom break and uh, we'll be back very shortly. All right, bathroom break is over. We are back and we are going to get into this watch along. We are at 1 hour, 32 minutes, and 42 seconds with a paused Randy Savage on the top rope for the, the replay coverage of this match that just concluded. Hope everyone's uh, uh, cleaned out and hydrated and ready to go for another hour and some change left of this watch along here. Uh, so I'll do a countdown and we'll get back into it in 3, 2, one hit play. Savage dropping the elbow on uh, <clears throat> Tenzon to tie it up in this best of seven series. Um, have you seen the, the, the those uh, hidden treasure episodes? There was one I think on him, or it's uh, where they're looking Ron Savage. Yeah. There's one when they're looking for a robe and a crown. I haven't seen. I haven't seen the Savage one. The only ones that I've seen that I at least sat through because they were interesting were the Andre one, the Jerry Lawler one, Ric Flair, and what was it, Jerry? Lawler? The Flair one was really Andy interesting. Andy Kaufman, <coughs> with Jerry slash Jerry Lawler, I guess. Andy yeah. Kaufman, like because they talked about they had Bill Apter had Andy Kaufman's neck brace, which I think was like, totally fake. Yeah, I, I, I don't. I think I think, I think some of those are just for TV purposes. I don't think a lot of these yeah. guys really like the Flair one looked legit with all the robes. Yeah, like, the Andre know. one too because they like went all the way to the ranch where like his ranch hand. I didn't see that one. That one was cool. They, yeah. they didn't. They they got which I'm not sure this one was real, but the the cast the foot cast that he wore when he like broke his leg like in the 80s or 70s that you see like. Tuesday Night Titans episode. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Soft cast. Yeah. Um, not soft cast, a hard cast. Like a paper mache cast. It's like fucking tall as shit. Yeah. They had that. So they, I think the warehouse had that. Um, but they go one thing. And basically it was Big Show and Mark Henry and Top Dollar. Right? And like Mark Henry's crying every two fucking seconds. They pull out like a fingernail of Andre. <laughs> like they go to the, they go to, they go to the. They to, really pull out fingernail. No, no that's, but you know how, that's how that's how he was like crying like on flare levels. Yeah. So like there was a part of the episode where, oh God, I know, right? um, where they found a uh, passport of Andre's, and it showed that for a guy who traveled as much as he did, he had multiple passports. Yeah. And this passport showed like what countries were on the passport that he hit up right he and like up, thailand yeah. and fucking australia but everywhere it was like but that's cool like yeah i wish i had that like this is a real passport from andre the giant and like they were marveling over it and like it's it's big show it's top dollar it's the the wife of the ranch hand of his old ranch in north carolina i'm sure you've seen her in interviews I've, yeah so she had some of this stuff, and that's who they hit up. So when she pulls this thing out, like, Mark Henry has to leave the room because he starts crying. And then they have to, like, address, like, in, like, a sidebar, like, confessional. Like, yeah, Mark gets really emotional. And, he, you know, it, like, it was, like, cool. But, like, that, there's that. But the Flair one I really like, too. Like, I'm, like you said, you saw it. Like, there was a huge back and forth about the robes and particularly the the, 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 the black feather one. Yeah. The butterfly feather one. Yeah. Um, I like the I like some of them. They're pretty cool. So yeah, that's a cool little Flair, show. Flair's. They're cutting a promo with Flair currently. We're not gonna play the audio for it, but it's actually the timing of it in this conversation is interesting because um, 
you and I remember when mom and dad took us to Disney yes. in the summer of 96. Mm -hmm. We met Ric Flair at uh, Bradley International Airport in Hartford. Yep. And I was just recently at my, my go-to wrestling memorabilia spot, Ken's Cards and Collectibles in Berlin, Connecticut. Yep. It's got a wrestling room on top of all kinds of other sports memorabilia in there. It's a pretty cool little place. Go there is still it was I almost bought it the last time I went and I'm actually now I think I want to get it next time I go um, but there is a there is a boarding pass and a plane I think it's a, either a ticket or a boarding pass of the flight that you and I went no on shit. autographed by Rick Flair. How much is that? I think it's like 35 bucks. I'll, I'll go buy it now. Yeah. Like that's cool as <laughs> shit. Yeah. That's affordable, and I was yeah. literally on that plane with him. Yeah. The, the, I, I, I think I told that story recently, but the one thing I always like to tell about that story, if we're talking about artifacts as well, is that back at that time frame in WCW, like we're talking six months from what we're watching right now, mm -hmm. um, Arn Anderson used to carry around that silver halibur. Yes. It was used as a weapon of sorts. Yep. He was carrying that halibur onto the plane, yes. and I remember recognizing it, and I was standing behind him in line to get on the plane, yep. and I touched it. Yeah. And he like looked around and was like, and I'm like, oh, I didn't touch, I, you know what I mean? Like yeah. he kind of like, he felt something touch his briefcase yeah. and I like played it off like I didn't, but yeah, Arne Anderson, I, that, was, that Anderson, was the Halliburton. That was the briefcase. Arn Anderson does a great Iron Sheik impression. You wouldn't think somebody from Georgia with a Southern draw mm. could do an Iron Sheik impression, but Arn Anderson does a fantastic Iron Sheik impression. If you, if you ever Google like Iron or Google Iron Sheik stories, on uh, and YouTube or whatever. Arn Anderson. Huh? Arn Anderson tells a hilarious. It's a whole one of the early stories of him and Iron Sheik, but he does a great uh, Iron Sheik impression. As we see Sting coming out, waving the flag. So now they've brought the 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 United States pride into this best of seven. Before nobody else was waving the flag. Right, right, right. But now it's the seventh match. Game's on the line. Yeah. Sting's got to break out. You know all the heavy hitters, and that includes the the American flag. Um, in Nashville, Tennessee. Yep. So, um, while we're on the subject of Sting, it's been rumored that uh, you know he's he's nearing the end of his career. He's currently you know been a um, an attraction piece, if you will, for AEW. Kind of like, it's like a mentor to the Darby Allen character, which I thought I think it's it fitting. Works. It works for yeah. him. It's fitting, and they they don't overexpose him. Um, as the match is underway, three to three, tie tie ball games. We're in the seventh game here, seventh match, if you will. Um, so Sting's towards the end of his run in AEW. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, I think his contract runs out at, towards the end of this year. Um, but you know, for years, the big question was, would he ever eventually go to the WWE, which we did see a number of years ago. Right. A very short-lived run. Um, very disappointing, in my opinion. What was your take on his run? I was run? not disappointed with that run at all. I thought it was what it was. Um, I thought he was very lucky to get a world title match. I thought that was a silly thing. Did you like that? It was predictable. He wasn't going to win the belt. Why do, like, it, it yeah, but the idea of someone like him who was so attached to the lineage of WCW getting an opportunity to compete for the WWE championship that late in his in his yes. career there's that there's there's a story to tell and I appreciate the story and I like that it. appeal but was to me what sold it for and, me and I think we we had this conversation yesterday that's a perfect challenge internally for the for the for the players involved in putting that match together to make 
you have now, your task is to make me believe in that match, in moments, that Sting might actually win. And I don't think they did that. No, they, in that match, they didn't. And I, and, and I don't think they successfully pulled that off. And that's what I mean. Like, that, that, the runway is very small to make that an enjoyable match when it's predictable. But again, the greats can do that. The greats can make that challenge. They can answer that call. Do you think somebody else would have been better suited for that role than Rollins? No, Rollins, no, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, yeah, someone probably when his neck would have been broken. So I guess yeah. anyone would have been better from that vantage point. Yeah. But um, I don't. I don't think it was a Rollins issue. Just the mat. You know, like, it, I mean, you're also talking about a sixty-something-year-old wrestler. Like, yeah. You know, like, how good can the match be? I, I, I'm like I said, I'm just of the belief that if that great matches come from answering uh, a challenge, again, from a creative standpoint, that can be satisfying. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, and, I, and I sort of picked up his philosophy from hearing a Shawn Michaels interview specific to his match with um, Randy Orton at Survivor Series 2007, where the stipulation was, now this was a creative thing. This is a great stipulation. The yeah. stipulation was he could, not, he could not use the super kick in the match. Otherwise he gets disqualified. But, so the challenge for him as Michael Hickenbottom, the, the performer, trying to make a good match using that framework is, how can I make the audience, be engage the audience with that barrier, yep. that shackle yeah. on me, right? There's a limitation that, there. That actual challenge. Yeah. As a, as, 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 that's, like going, that's like going to, like, let's say, like, that's like going to a concert and your favorite band doesn't play their greatest hit. Yes. How and can I'm, they make the show, how can they make the show entertaining? Yeah. Yes. And like a perfect example, my my Citizen Kane of wrestling matches, Shawn Michaels, Undertaker, WrestleMania 25, no one knew no one believed Shawn Michaels was going to win that matches, even as a smart fan. But they made you believe. In 47 minutes, you they thought made you believe. You, you thought he was ending that streak. The yeah. predictability element was overcome. Mm-hmm. And that's what I mean by staying in that match. The predictability element was not overcome. That doesn't make it a bad match. No. It just doesn't make it a very good or great match. Yeah. And that's, to me, the art form at its finest. When they can take something as insurmountable as something predictable or the shackles of something else, creatively or not, when they can overcome that with their abilities as great performers. All right, so let me ask you this question, okay? You just mentioned it. The, the ability to, to get people to believe he had a chance of winning in the title match. Does that same philosophy apply had they decided to go with Sting Undertaker? Yes. At any point in time, hundred percent. Okay, if we're talking like Sting Undertaker, like you know, for the streak or no, we're no because that point Sting Sting yeah, streak, like lay out the streak, scenario. Streak, the scenario. streak had already been broken. Okay, okay, that's right. So Sting came back in two thousand fifteen. Two thousand fourteen, he wrestled in. Hunter at WrestleMania in two thousand fifteen. Okay, mm-hmm. they put Undertaker and Wyatt. My dream scenario had all those pe- with all those pieces of the puzzle together was. Undertaker loses to Bray at that WrestleMania because he had lost the previous year to Brock, okay? So you're saying he loses again? I'm saying he loses again. I see that makes it predictable. But, hold on. He loses again, okay? Sting loses to Triple H the way we saw it, you know, that, that, which I'll get to that in a minute. Okay. I think I know where you're going with this, but yeah. And then Undertaker kind of has this fork in the road type of feeling where it's like, my streak was broken. I wanted to come back to see if I still had it. And the, the, the young kid, the young upstart Bray Wyatt, 
he he proved that he got the best of me. He, you know, I'm, I may not have it anymore. Yeah, yeah. And that's where Sting comes in and says, everyone's been wanting to see you and me go at it. Let's see if you got one more left with me. Yeah, like, and I, then I you, only got one. Let's see if you got one. Yeah, you know, I, I'm only here because I want to face you. That's a great story. You know, um, there's nothing predictable about that. And that's actually a good thing. And I think at that point, the attraction is just seeing them too one for one time only. Once in a lifetime, if you will. Um, that is, but like, say it was during the streak, and that's what the, that's what the streak matches became, which to me became the best part of, from, honestly, from 23 to the streak ended, that was The Undertaker's finest because it was, it was, ra- it was predictable. Yeah, he was not losing these matches. Yeah, for a very long, you like you just you just didn't believe he was losing. Although them. that Orton match at twenty one had he, he throw that one into yeah, fair enough, fair enough. That that, that was a pretty fun. So match. we'll say from twenty to finish here. We'll, let's say from twenty to thirty, Undertaker, it was rather predictable, right? So the challenge becomes as the wrestler, the professional that's trying to make an entertaining match. How do I get? How do I overcome that hump, that barrier that fans have of ah, he's gonna win the match? Yeah, you know what I mean. How do I make it entertaining along the way, knowing? It's still the predictable outcome mm-hmm. that's going to come into play. That's what makes things great. So to your scenario, you, I think you've taken the, the predictability element out of it. So that's actually a good story. If it was, say, in during the streak, then it's that's the challenge now. Just Match like over. Streak matches and just like that. WCW wins. All is good in America again. Yep. The clouds have been lifted. Yep. But yeah, I Those think... Those evil foreigners, they didn't get the best of them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I think Sting's... Sting would have had... The challenge, I feel like, at Sting's stage of his career that also Undertaker would have had would have been the real life, like, fuck, we're old. Yeah. Can we do this? And I think that would have been cool, too. And it wouldn't have been... And to, the, to the, what you laid out... It, Let's say Bray Wyatt does win, or, then yeah, then I think you have that all things equal element. And it, and, and the, the, otherwise, I would have think I would still tip it to Taker. You know, Sting goes into the Hall of Fame the following year in Texas. Undertaker had uh, the rumors were at that time that Undertaker was going to call it quits after that WrestleMania when he wrestled Shane McMahon. So imagine Undertaker going out on his on his shield against Sting. That weekend in Texas, that would have been a nice little way to kind of send him off. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and, and even send Sting off to, to that extent. Sting basically came to WWE because he wanted that match. Yeah, absolutely. Um, That's unfortunate. And unfortunately, he didn't get it. And I just actually read recently, and I've never read this, but I read this recently. Someone did a, a someone attended one of those Undertaker, uh, you know, one man dead, dead show mm-hmm. experiences, those yeah. speaking engagements. Yeah. And the, the, the topic of Sting came up. Somebody asked the question. And Undertaker had admitted that he turned down the match with Sting in WWE because he was not confident in the quality of the mat, uh, of the, the in-ring match and what it was going to be. He was I not confident that they were going to have a good quality match, which I'm kind of surprised with considering... He wrestled Goldberg in Saudi Arabia a few years later, and Money talks there. I would say. Well, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. He got a big Money payday talks. out of that. Deal. But outside of that match, like he was wrestling with people who were carrying the load in a lot of respects. Yeah. He Bray Wyatt carried that program and did a fantastic job in that match with him. Uh, Brock Lesnar, same thing. Is even though as as, as unsafe as that match was, mm-hmm. CM Punk the year before, Sean Hunter, you name it. Like he was in a time frame, I think, towards the end of that streak where his 
he was of a diminishing value, but those guys hid that. Yeah. Those guys' greatness helped hide yeah. that. Along with his greatness, too. Yeah. So I think maybe there was an uneasiness because he was unsure if that could happen with Sting, who's probably at that level, at that time, equal in diminishing value. Yes. In diminishing scale. Yeah. So two guys who are diminishing are going to climb, yeah. where they can't necessarily cover each other up. They may be able to build it up with all the smoke and mirrors and the hocus pocus and all that other stuff, but when the bell rings, that's pretty much when things things end. Exactly, right. So it was probably wise on his part, and I get that. As I we get this trophy presentation here. Uh, Staying Luger, you see Benoit Guerrero, Johnny B. Bad, Alex Wright. Randy Savage is in there for a hot minute, but I think they realized he's got a he's got a match uh, coming up at some point, so he had to duck out of there. Um, and I think up next is the triangle match, um, and then following that we will have the main event, uh, the winner of that triangle match to go up against Randy Savage. So um, the title match. We'll close this pay-per-view um, as we see Dusty Rhodes, Bobby Heenan, Tony Schiavone. It's in many ways like a star-studded announced team. Yes, I, I, you know, a lot of people. I, I, I'm not a big fan of the three-man booth. Okay, but by and large, I would agree. But it's and a lot of fans right aren't. But there are good trios that have been together that have called matches over the years that I think don't get enough credit. Vince, JR, and Jerry Lawler. They had some good ones, yeah. They had some really good ones. And I think even the... And that was another thing, too. WWF, I think at this time, only did two. They only had Vince and Lawler or maybe uh, JR. They used to always do two-man booths. And then occasionally they would do a three-man booth. WCW always had the three-man booth. So you had Shivani on on play-by-play. And then you had two basically color analysts with Dusty and Bobby. I thought the chemistry between those three yeah. was really good. I would agree. And not only did they, they were they were they good at illustrating a story with what you were watching on screen, but they were able to take and I don't know if they did this on purpose, but they were able to take moments um, that wasn't necessarily. Um, designed to be presented in a certain way on TV and poke fun at them or like Bobby Heenan would make a joke and like you could tell like the chemistry was organic when like Bobby Heenan would make a joke and Dusty would kind of joke back with him and it may not have anything to do with the match yeah, yeah. but like you felt as you were at least for me as a fan you felt as you were watching like they were having fun with what they were doing yeah yeah definitely you know so that's what I that was the big appeal for me is what I liked yeah. about that as well. Um, I would agree with that. Absolutely. I think I think there was a little bit of an organic chemistry that they had that kind of bled through. Like you knew these guys didn't just show up and put headsets on and start calling matches together. Yeah. They, no, there was like a built-in rapport and knowing yeah. each other for decades. And also, too, even though Bobby was traditionally the heel of the commentators, he wasn't so much a heel that like he disagreed with a lot of what like Tony or Dusty would say. He would, but he was also he he kind of he wasn't the Bobby Heenan that you that we got in the WWF where he like totally played it down the line as as, as far as a heel commentator. Whereas on the other side, Vince and Jerry Lawler like Lawler like had an answer for everything Vince said. Right. You know, Bobby, he was a heel to an extent, but he didn't put it on 
like full yeah, he didn't say things. He didn't do the outrageous things. Say the outrageous things he would say in WWF to Gorilla. Yeah, to get a rise out of Gorilla, which yeah. is, of course, like the gold standard of commentary teams for yes. that reason because of that chemistry on the Mount Rushmore. Yeah. Oh, for sure. So, like in the same way that Jr. did it, to, or the King did it to Jr. And the yeah. Actor, just basically, it was almost like a rib to the to, to the straight laced guy to get the heel to to just. Fucking stick the needle in and twist it. Like I said, Bobby would play heel every once in a while as a commentator in WCW programming, but he wasn't. It wasn't as over the top as it was when he was in the WWF. Yeah, and plus then, that's the airtime in the real estate too. And I think also too, what was great about and people will say like, oh, he he his the quality of his work, you know, wasn't the same in WCW. I think what was great about him as a performer was he was. His character had established an on-screen relationship with Hogan, so much so that when Hogan turned bad and joined the NWO, Bobby Heenan... Oh, classic line, I think. You know, yeah. yeah we, what have I been saying all these years? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, exactly. He's like, I told you he was yeah. this evil. And then when the NWO had grown and become this, this larger-than-life you know, act on television, Bobby would... In a way, he would admonish the NWO, but then he would totally, totally, totally put down Hogan. He would keep with it. He, he still hated Hogan. He still hated Hogan. He'd be like, you know, those NWO guys, they may be, you know, he would kind of like, but he still hated like Hogan. a little tip of the cap. Well, there was, I remember also like, you're, you know, once that storyline got rock and roll and like, and they were like taking over Nitro, there was like a, a, a scene they did at the commentary table where like, he was like so like, in that heelish cowardice like position of like please I'll I'll, I'll join you I'll do whatever oh, you guys yes, want yes. like kind of that whole like I'm with you like yep. you know and that I was right that before was, Star King yes that was so well done I was yes. like I'll do whatever you guys want yeah. like I'll join you like I'll wear your shirt yep. or whatever, like whatever you can to, yeah. to save his own hide you know mm-hmm. what I mean and I thought that was like a like really put over the severity of like the but also like at the same time he stayed true to that's what Bobby Heenan would do yeah you know what I mean to protect his own hide like yeah. Paul Heyman did it to Kevin Owens, I believe, at the Royal Rumble. Like, at that post-match scuffle where he, like, turned around. Was it the Rumble or WrestleMania? Royal Rumble, I think. And, like, there was a, you know, either post-match or right before Owens got beat down before the Sami Zayn turn. Like, he was about to, like, guzzle Owens and Owens turned around. And Paul Heyman was like... Oh, I'll, I'm with you now. I'll manage you just oh, to yeah, yeah, just yeah, to yeah. just to back off Owens from. Oh, it was um Chamber Elimination Chamber. Chamber. Okay, I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah, but he's Owens like, I'm made with the you. save for Sammy. Yep. I'm with you yeah. now, which was like people thought that was like an Easter egg. Like, oh, Paul Heyman's gonna turn. I, I thought no, that. I thought that too. It was just I kind of thought that too. Or I thought at the very least it was gonna be acknowledged that by Roman, like, hey, what did you just say to him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. right, right. You know, right, kind of thing. After the fact, you know, yeah. yeah, something after. But I liked, but that was like classic wrestling. No, 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 no. I'm with you now. Like, shake my. Yeah, we're good. Yeah. And then of course Owens is like, no, I don't trust this fucking snake. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's and that's that was Bobby Heenan. Yes. Yeah, to a T. Absolutely. So the triangle match is underway. Sting, Luger, Flair. Winner will face Randy Savage immediately following. Um, so this is Flair's first match of the night. But like you said, everyone uh, everyone had to get on the card twice. At least wrestle twice. Which is dumb, but whatever. Which I would have been, honestly, I would have been, it would have been more interesting had they turned it into a four-way with Savage. And so the the appeal was, 
the, the appeal would be Flair as the heel only wrestling once. Right, exactly. That's kind of what I was getting at earlier. And the other three, even with Savage as the champion, all represent... Like, maybe Flair turning down a spot on the WCW team. Yeah. You know, like, I'm not gonna, I'm not guy. gonna wrestle, you know, for you guys and then have to wrestle for the title later and get yeah. my title like shot, Flair. you know? Like, I get the title yeah. shot. Or, like, if they had opened the show with this match and then, like, the story that you can tell is, like, with a Sting and a Luger who are competing in those Japan matches, like, I don't know, leave some sort of injury or some sort of ailment or some sort of obstacle of, like, wow, like, Luger took a beating, like, can, how's he gonna do for, for WCW tonight? Or, yeah. You know, same thing with Sting. Or that's a scenario. There's just so many. There's, it opens the, the, yeah. the box. They do an injury team. angle, and is Sting yeah. going to be able to make it to the final match in the seventh? Yeah, yeah against like, you know. Can Sting make it to go get the title back or do what you know? Like yeah. it's, so there's all that stuff that you could do, but I feel like the fact that this is on now, and then there's the next match. It's like yeah. you don't leave any curiosity yeah. available. It's it's it was silly to me, in my opinion. Yeah, that, that, that yeah, that, this this aspect really is the only drawback of this event. This was I'm just trying to put squeeze this into the concept. Yeah, yeah, you're right, absolutely. Like we still got to sell pay per views no, and sell tickets. But you know what though, it's no different than when they do tournament themed pay per views, and in between the the, the rounds, they got to throw like a, a non tournament style match. But does that usually include guys who are in the tournament? No, it doesn't. That's fair. Okay, that's a fair point. You know, like, the, but that's what also makes some of those tournament style pay per views. Um, not as appealing, you know. That like nothing's you can't announce matches ahead of time. Yeah. Like, like either, like to me, like friends, like I go, I go back to like the King of the Ring events over the years, okay, mm-hmm. where they used to do the eight man tournament in one night, or they even would do like I think they did like a sixteen man one one year. I think the original King of the Ring show, which was like a live event. Was I believe like a sixteen man tournament? Yeah, in, like fucking Ontario, Toronto. Who won that? Don Morocco, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah. He won the first one. I feel like Bret Hart also won one of those too. Bret Hart did win one in '91. I remember. Yeah. DiBiase won a couple. I think yeah. Savage won bef- before he was the king on TV. Yeah. yeah, yeah. As well. So yeah, but those were like one night tournaments where it was like you said, sixteen yeah. wrestlers. But then when they format it on television and pay per view, you it had be- to. It's you had to give it an attraction. To, you had to sell the pay per view on just more than the tournament because you didn't have a card that you could announce other than the first round matches. Yeah, and that doesn't that's not as all that appealing. So I get that. That's fine. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 but but again, like they didn't use like they didn't use the same wrestlers in the tournament matches as they did no, in the other matches. So that's like didn't. where they really screwed themselves here. I feel like, like. King of Ring '93 was an eight man tournament, and you know I, I get it. They want to. Create this story of this tournament, but some of the matches, excuse me, some of the matches you have to come up with some finishes for time purposes, you know, like a like a double DQ or you know, these two guys, you know, one guy got counted out or someone gets a buy, you know what I mean, like right. in, in a tournament kind of thing, like. For, but at the same time, if you're gonna do that, then. In a sense, there's no there's no point in having a full tournament. And then eventually, King of the Ring, they turned it into, like, the final four. Yeah, which I don't where, like. I liked it when it was eight. Eight's a good number. Where it's, like, still, like, you're actively in the tournament. But at the same time, though, here's the thing. Like you just said earlier, like, you, you got to add some kind of an attraction to it in order for um, people to want to buy the pay-per-view because all you're really doing is announcing the first-round matches. But what about what's at stake? Because they're, you know, being... At the time in in the '90s when you had these King of the Ring events, there was really nothing at stake other than you became the king. 
Sure. You know, if you were to announce something ahead of time being at stake, do you think that there would be a little bit more of an appeal for people to order those events? Like, let's sure, say the king win, the, you, you become king, and you, it's in similar money in the bank fashion. You can choose when you get your title shot. You know, yeah, that would definitely kind of that would definitely add some sizzle to it. Yeah, I don't think it's going to put it over the top, but it's certainly going to yeah. like incrementally add some sort of intrigue to it. Um, yeah, definitely, I would say I would say so. Um, I think something like that would work in a streaming world better than the pay per view era, because in the pay per view era, you lived and died off of you know having big names draw money to buy the pay per views and to and to fill the arenas. Now right. in the streaming world, it's much different. Because you're getting that money in a sense up front. Yeah, like I said, um, it's baked in. You already yeah. got the subscription, so you're fine. So yeah, like, yeah, absolutely. I, I think, I think there's certainly a happy medium which they I think they were able to accomplish during that era where the King of the Ring was a pay per view. Yeah, where they had the eight or four competitors left, and then they also had like the headliner match, like the the world title match or mm-hmm. whatever you know Stone Cold was doing or whatever. You know what I mean? That, I think, was the happy medium, where that's why King of the Ring, in many ways, was considered a, a big five pay-per-view, mm-hmm. because it, 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 that was there, plus some good matches. Yep. Yeah, I, I think now, because of the, the advent of women's wrestling becoming you know, more prevalent in the, in the mainstream scene, uh, that doing a queen of the ring and a king of the ring, you obviously can't do eight tournament matches on each side, you would have to kind of do a final four for the men and a final four for the women on the same card. Yeah. And, and, and do, you know, there's two, three, so six, ma- that's six matches right there. Yeah. And then you throw in, you know, maybe two more matches as, a, as an attraction. Yeah. I um, think what you could do, which would be neat, and I think it would be perfect in Saudi Arabia, is what if you had a two-night event to hold these two tournaments? Yeah, and not one night is the women and one night's the men. You, no. you mix it up. Yeah, and the finals of both will take place the second night, night too. Right? Yeah, that would be cool, and I think that would have some appeal. And I think in this era of like them trying to like send over these gimmicks and these themes to Saudi Arabia, that's a perfect one. Yeah, where like like imagine it like at a crown jewel where it's a maybe it's a two night event. Yeah, it, you know, and and even that's a theme. Mm-hmm. That's a gimmick, you know what I mean, and that's yeah. going to be grandiose and matter a lot more, and you can you can spread out a tournament over the course of two shows. Imagine some of these older wrestling pay per views that we've watched over the years, if they were two night events. That's a cool, uh, yeah. You know, like like we've talked about WrestleMania and you know how certain WrestleManias could probably fit into a two night format. Mm-hmm. Um, like, like for me, like for instance, like WrestleMania Seven, I think is perfect because there's like 15 matches on that card. You could you pretty much cut that in half. Yeah. And you have night one is headlined by Warrior and Savage with the retirement match, and night two is headlined by Hogan yeah. and Slaughter. Yeah. You know, with the, the 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 championship match. And that's and that's a concept I think I introduced a while back that I think will probably what do a long form. Yes. WrestleMania season. Yeah. Maybe each pick a WrestleMania and 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 use the matches available to. To make a two night to event. make a two night card, yeah. um, I think you look at like for instance like um, Survivor Series. I think would be good for that. Survivor Series War Games would have been good for that. If you had to, one night is female War Games, one night's male War Games. You know what I mean? Rather than bookending a pay per view, it was an excellent pay per view. Yes, wrong. Um, but like imagine that too. Like 
where you have all these wrestlers and all these different if if you wanted to have your cake and eat it too you could have each night headlined by a war games mm-hmm. and then you have survivor series matches in, in and around that yeah like that would be cool you know what i mean especially when you're talking about brand warfare and the new the new brand extension or the, mm-hmm. the draft that they just had like or even um i mean there's not much in terms of like all the shows that wcw did were more or less the same but like i don't know star i feel like starcade would be like the one event you would probably do a two-nighter for because like halloween havoc like Halloween isn't two nights. Yeah. So why would you make Halloween happen? Yeah, that's nights? true. Yeah. Now, that that's a semantical thing. Yeah. Like that's not that's you know like what what are you gonna do? There? Maybe a Great American Bash because if you hold it like on a holiday weekend and you know people take yeah. the hol- holiday weekends. That's as true. An extended you could break, do that. You know, or bash at the beach. Bash at the beach. Yeah. Bash at the beach weekend. That sounds. Yeah. That that's sounds got a little panache to topical it. Topical and 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 relatable. Go to a beach weekend. Um, but outside of that, yeah, Starcade would probably be the other one and would have the, the, the cachet for it. So, um, yeah, no, I think you could definitely do that um, with with these. I mean, I'm trying to think of, like, even on the, the WWE side, what else? Like, I mean, not SummerSlam, King of the Rings. Royal um, Rumble. Royal Rumble, I think, would be a part, even today. I think, yeah. Like, I think what you're, I, you know, I know we're talking WW, WCW here, but I think what you could totally see eventually is that those Big four big are just the two night events and yeah, everything that, else. Is not a, just WrestleMania will be two yeah. nights. I think eventually the Royal Rumble will be two nights. Yeah. SummerSlam will be two nights. Survivor Series could be two nights eventually. Yeah. And like you spread where those are the ten poles and then the other ones you get your your Saudi Arabia show. Yep. Your, your Dubai, yep. your Mexico City and in London type uh-huh. shows where maybe you're doing less pay per views theoretically and you're just kind of reorienting where your big shit happens and just kind of doing the big four where they're both two nights. All right. I want to touch on this. We are currently now at two hours, five minutes and 47 seconds. Um, This is a triangle match. Okay. This is what they've labeled it as a triangle match, but there's tags in the triangle match and they have one guy out on the floor. I do not recall ever seeing a match like that. Uh, I remember that being sort of a new thing they introduced around this time. Um, not here necessarily. I know in tag team formats Didn't they've they done. Didn't they do that, that in ECW? Well, they didn't have a guy tag. All dance. three guys were in the ring at the same time. Um, yeah. That's my point. Is that so? You have I a think, guy. You have a guy tagged out. So this essentially feels like a handicap match if you're watching it. Well, it's not a handicap match. No, I know, but a, like because of the the, the tag format. Right, but it, I just, yeah. I mean, I I think they were still trying to find a way to wrestle triple threat matches, psychologically speaking. Like, I don't think these guys were used to doing triple threat matches or multi-man matches. Yeah. Like, they were just from a time... ECW was the one that really kind of broke yeah, that. Yeah, but if you even remember that, that, tri- that initial triple threat match at the night the line was crossed was Sabu and Terry Funk and Shane Douglas. Terry Funk missed most of that match, and Sabu and Shane Douglas tore it up. And then I think Sabu got hurt. Terry Funk came so back. So they swapped the them out based on they booked it so that they swapped these guys out. Yeah. It okay. was it's a heralded match, from what I understand. I've never seen it. But the psychology of it also made sense because it's Terry Funk and he's older and Sabu could be reckless and you could there was two instances where you could pull guys in and out. Yeah. But it still was more or less for ninety five percent of that match one on one. Yeah. But it didn't okay. include tag. This gotcha. one did. So yeah. Um, I think this was just them. The early in um, the early uh, iterations of a triple threat match. Yeah. This is this is what they came up with. 
to to before they could smoothen out the, the process. Yeah. Okay. All right. That makes sense. But psychologically speaking, I think it's dumb because like, why would Luger ever want to tag in? Yeah. <laughs> well, is it elimination? No, I think it's. If I'm not mistaken, I think it's one fall to a finish uh, because yeah. Luger broke up Sting's pin in order to get into the match. He, I think he like broke yeah. up the pin and then they, they tagged him in. Why would you want to tag in the other guy that's on the apron when yeah. you can have the opportunity to yeah. win? Yeah, exactly. It's like the psychology and that yeah. doesn't make that's, sense. That's the dumb psychology about it that doesn't that doesn't shake with me. So I mean, and they did away with it because they made it make more sense. By just having three people wrestle at the same time. Yeah. And now it's, you know, triple threat matches and four ways and all this other stuff are, you know, things of the norm. But, I mean, I remember growing up when they would introduce those early on. And they wouldn't do them all the time. They would only throw them in sporadically. They felt like a big deal. Yeah, and I feel like you could even do some sort of concept today where in some sort of attraction, depending on a storyline, where, like, you do a triangle match where, you know, I don't know. Fucking a coin toss determines who's on the outside, and you know there is the storyline element of how that plays to the performers, and yeah. it certainly can be done. It's uh-huh. just, but you have to acknowledge the obvious. Yeah, doing it. You know what I mean? Like you would have to acknowledge, like, great, like Seth Rollins is in the corner, like he's the champion, and he could lose his belt, and he could have nothing to do with it, which is part of the triple threat concept. Yep. But this would, th- doing it in this format would have an interesting element to it because mm-hmm. he could theoretically not be in the match. So Sting nails Luger with a chair because there's no disqualifications. Or maybe there is and they, they have the referee distracted. I don't know. But because we're watching this, we don't play the audio. We don't know. I think he's being counted out. Yeah, so I would imagine there is disqualifications. See, that's great. So, all right, but so then again, that wouldn't make sense. So either. if he's counted out, then Who maybe this the is match? an elimination match. So then match. Luger would win the match, right? Would Luger be the winner because he's the league? But maybe winner. this is an elimination match. Because if, right. he, if Flair's counted out, how are you going to award Luger the win and Sting's on the apron? Yeah. Here's actually an interesting spin you could put on this on a triple threat match. Say it's these three guys. You, you add the element of the beat the clock mm-hmm. concept. So say it's, it's Flair, Luger, and Sting. And let's say Flair beats Luger in 9 minutes and 12 seconds. Now Sting has to beat Flair. In nine minutes and twelve seconds, interesting. Or Flair wins, and Flair doesn't have to win the match. Okay, like Flair doesn't have to score a fall to, to to win. He's like set the clock. He set the pace. So Flair's first victory essentially could win him the match if the other opponent yeah. doesn't now, beat the clock. Yeah. Now I wouldn't put a tag on them. I'd have all three just going. Yeah. Where, like, yeah. where, where the where the the chase is? Who's gonna set the pace? Who's gonna score the fall? Yeah. And eliminate the first guy. Beat the clock, place. triple threat. I like that. And, That's interesting. And again, like it would be, it would be really cool because, like again, like oh, now Sting's got to beat Ric Flair. Now that Luger's been eliminated in nine minutes. And yeah. If Sting doesn't beat him in nine minutes, it doesn't matter if Flair doesn't score a fall. He wins the match. Yeah. Like that to me would be cool. See now here, so Flair's got Luger in the figure four, right? He's holding on to the ropes. Referee's going for the count. Now Sting is, Sting is. Basically, trying to get the ref's attention that Flair's cheating. Why yeah. would you give a shit that Flair's cheating when Luger's your opponent as well? Well, if it's one fall to a finish, the what what Flair's doing is to, I guess, get Luger to tap out yeah. by applying that pressure and therefore submitting. 
And it, that's if it's one fault. There's way too many questions about the rules in this match. Yeah. Granted, we're also doing a watch along. Like if so it was an do... elimination, that would make sense. Like, yeah. That, that question would make sense because it's saying like, less for me to worry about a stay. Mm-hmm. I'll just answer the match after Luger's been yeah. tossed. But if it's one fall, then he wants Flair to... But then again, wouldn't he be disqualified if he got caught? Wouldn't that end the match? Yeah, but so if he gets disqualified, then who's the winner? I, it legally is Luger. Legally it's Luger because right. Sting's not legally in the match. Right, and so yeah, again, all these but things. I, but I, I guess that's something that you could, you could implement later on down the line that, you know, Sting never got pinned in the match. Yeah. And, and you Luger, Luger may have won by default because of the disqualification, so Sting still deserves another opportunity at the title. That, I mean, that's, that's something that you couldn't yeah, implement. You, yeah, you could play with that too. Yeah. yeah, definitely. But again, to ask all those questions is to like kind of go like, what? What are we? What are we watching right now? Yeah. So I think that the simpler you make it, the better in that sense. If it can't be answered in a, in a one or two word, one or two sentences, then it's probably it's probably too confusing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? What's interesting about this match too? I just thought of it is with the history of Starcade, these three men in the ring, Sting, Luger, and Flair, were major parts of the majority of the Starcades leading up to this. Like I said, Flair headlined like six of them. Uh-huh. Okay? And then Sting was a part of, of a fair amount of them as well. Mm-hmm. Flair main evented 88 against Luger. He main evented 89 against Sting and 90 against Sting. Mm-hmm. 89 was that, like, Iron Man tournament. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, he didn't come back till '93, where he would main event against Vader, with the infamous career right. versus title right. stipulation. Luger headlined '88 against Flair. He wrestled Sting in '89, um, and in that part of that Iron Man tournament that Sting won. '90 um, was Luger. Luger wrestled. Luger wrestled Stan Hansen. In a bull rope match in 1990 oh, wow. at, in the Keel Auditorium. Okay. Um, 91, Luger was the world heavyweight champion and lost the Battle Bowl match to Sting. In, they were the final two in the Battle Royal. 92, both Flair and Luger were gone in the WWF. Mm-hmm. And Sting was... Sting wrestled... He lost that... Sting didn't win that ba- that Battle Bowl. Mm-hmm. He lost that. Great Muda won that Battle Bowl. Right. But Sting won the King of Cable against Vader... That year, that that bullshit tournament. I don't know what the King of Cable was, anyways. Um, and then '93, I think Sting was in a tag match against the Nasty Boys. Right. I forget who his part was. The Davy Boy. That sounds about right. Yeah. For the time, it's yeah. Right. I can't. I... Then Flair in '94. He wasn't at Starcade because of the retirement stipulation at Halloween Havoc. Luger was still in the WWF. Sting wrestled, I think, Earthquake on that show. Or was he a... Did he wrestle? Earthquake? I think it was Earthquake. Earthquake? The Avala- shark. The Avalanche. Avalanche. I think he was the Avalanche yeah. before he was the Shark. And then this match here, 95. So, yeah. The history of Starcade, Sting, Luger, and Flair, in this current match Pretty that we're watching, they, they have imp- important roles on... They kind of cover like all the main events. Yeah. If you think about it. Yeah. And then following this is when really it, it, it shifts gears to, well, there's not really much consistency. Hogan main events, two Starcades in a row. And then what was 98? That was Nash and Goldberg. 98 was Nash and Goldberg. 99, 99 was, was Goldberg. Brett and Goldberg. 2000 was? Sid and Scott Steiner. Ugh. 
which was probably the only decent main event match they could have put on at that time. There wasn't match. much. There wasn't yeah. much left. Do they have that 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 tag team ladder match for the cruiserweight tag title? Yes, that's that, that was that, a pretty air 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 something. Or other no, it was three count young dragons and uh, Evan Courageous and um, oh right, uh, yeah. uh, Jamie Noble. Yeah, which is the show stealer of that match. You could have yes. you could have stopped watching that pay per view and you'd have been fine. Exactly. I remember I ordered that pay per view. Um, what were you thinking? I ordered a lot of WCW pay-per-views towards the end, thinking that they were going to make some big comeback. Or something. <laughs> but it's this is a funny Buy story. A hamburger. And, <laughs> and a, I, I heard that wasn't it. true. I heard that wasn't oh, true. Oh, I'm sure yeah. it wasn't. Yeah. Um, but I I had ordered that pay-per-view, that Starcade 2000, and the cable company at the time they used to when you used to order the pay-per-views you got the replays as well yep. so you paid the 49.99 and you had you wrestling on your TV for 6 hours yep. so um, 6 hours of WCW so late 2000 the, so that Starcade pay-per-view we had an ice storm in 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 Connecticut and the ice storm took the power out and we were sitting at home for a few hours with no power, candles lit, you know, a whole lot. This is December, okay? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's cold as fuck. We were living on Ardmore. Uh-huh. And I had the TV and the cable box in my room. And I had already ordered Starcade earlier in the day. Mm-hmm. So I managed the, the, the storm. I don't know what happened, but we got the power back on at like, like close to 10 o'clock. So I ended up watching the last hour and then recording the pay, the, the the full pay per view at eleven o'clock. When it's, so I got to watch the the ladder match. Nice um, later on, but yeah, so I I can't recall that happening. I guess I was more interested in staring at a candle in the dark than watching. <laughs> well, no, we didn't have. Well, we didn't have. I mean, we didn't have the, any access to television. Yeah, where you know. Well, after staring at a candle in the dark for hours, I guess I was not interested. <laughs> yeah, right. I guess my interest was not starved enough mm-hmm. to want to settle for watching Starcade 2000. I don't know. I was, I was under the impression at that time that like they were going to make some big comeback. I don't know. I really was. Yeah, I was done with them after Bash at the Beach. Oh, uh, Hogan. That's when I was like, this place sucks. <laughs> Even Hulk Hogan says it sucks. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Yeah, I don't know. Maybe we'll do that one someday. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that, that would be that would be an interesting show to go back and watch and make fun of for two and a half hours on a podcast. <laughs> yeah, that, definitely. That'd be a lot of fun. <laughs> um, I'm sure we can find plenty of things to talk about as we're watching that garbage. Yeah. But this match is a little long in the tooth here, I yeah. must say. Um, and I'm st- I still can't get over the idea that there's a guy on the outside in this triangle yeah. match. And I, he's like... Doing what he would do if he was a tag team partner, like slapping the turnbuckle. Yeah. Like, what are you getting excited like for? Babyface comeback. What are you yeah, doing? Like stomping on the apron. <laughs> yeah. Getting the crap. Come on, yeah. let's go. Yeah, do the Ricky Morton clap. Yeah, what, yeah what, come what, on. Yeah, what the fuck, it's, man? Uh, it's a dumb concept that yeah. they luckily got over. Uh, and the other appeal of this match, not only the fact that, you know, it's an opportunity to face Savage immediately following, but you now have friends in Sting and Lex Luger. Mm-hmm. Facing each other, and Luger was kind of a heel, but he was best friends with a baby face. And you know, looking back on it, 
as a, as a young Dave Rosenbluth watching this, I hated it because I was conditioned to the good guys and the bad guys. They don't like each other. Right, right. But by today's standards, if they did something similar like this, a sting in, I mean, I'm sure they have. I can't think off the top of my head, but there's a little bit of intrigue in, in Sting being this good guy and Luger being this snake that everybody knows is a snake, but Sting has such a loyalty to him. Yeah, like, no, he's know? not really like that guy. So. Yeah. Like, there, 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 is some, there is some interest in it. Now, yeah. you know, like, I hated it as a kid, especially when Sting was aligned with Hogan, and then he would tag with Luger, you know, a week later after Luger had tried to take out Hogan. You know? Right, right. I was, I was so confused, but looking back on it, in hindsight, it's, oh, it's, ooh. And he saw that and didn't do anything. So, I, yeah, well, that's <laughs> the deal. I don't understand this. Again, we don't have, we're not sounding this off and to get the explanation. Yeah. But yeah, it just... And he goes back to Flair to tell him to stay in the uh, corner. You behave. Yeah. <laughs> Nick Patrick, your favorite referee, right? Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> why, don't you, like? why don't you share with the audience what you don't like about Nick Patrick? Because this, this is something that you and I have, we have discussed in text messages. About... Well, we, we talked, I think it was right around WrestleMania time, we were talking about referees going in the Hall of Fame because they put Tim White in. And I had mentioned, like, Nick Patrick was one of those refs that could go in with, like, Randy Pee Wee Anderson, Tommy Young. And you were like, fuck Nick Patrick. Well, I mean, just on the Stark, the Starkate finish alone, I'm not sure what else I may have mentioned. <laughs> I can't but, yeah, I don't Stark know. Starkate 97. Yeah, the Starkate 97 yeah. finish alone yeah. is, like, an abomination. Um what did I say? I don't even remember. You were just like you were just like you don't like him as a referee. Oh, I don't think he's like a big deal. I don't. Yeah. No, he's not a big deal. Like, I mean, he's been around wrestling his whole life. Like, I think his dad was a big deal. Like in the territory days and the assassins, right? Yeah, Jody yeah. Hamilton, and he yeah. was once a wrestler. I think in that group yeah. under a mask. So, I mean, I, I respect him, but like, yeah, I don't know, he's not memorable. Oh, you know, I got you confused with Kobe. Oh, Cause, okay. Because Kobe hates Nick Patrick. Like, he hates when, like, Patrick, like, when he does the count and, like, he, he points to the hard camera. Oh, yeah, like, I noticed that. Like, the, like, if it's a two count, he'll point to the hard camera. Right, yeah, rather than, like, in WWE, they go to they, the timekeeper. They go to the timekeeper who's out of camera sight kind yeah, yeah. of thing. Yeah, Which, you know. I, well, I, I'm interested in knowing. Or the way this. he even counts, too, when he does, like, this flip oh, with his hand. yeah, yeah. Like, he fucking hates that, too. He talks about that, too, yeah. Well, I think that is kind of silly. Um, I mean, whatever. Everyone's got their way of counting. They, or like, yeah, the old referees would just be like one, two, like very just like very robotic. Or they'll 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 count right. They'll hit. They'll go one, and then they'll put the fucking hand underneath the shoulders to oh. make sure they're still on the mat yeah. in order for him to do the second yeah. count. Or it's like amateur wrestling. Like, okay, yeah, sure, we're still because that's how it works in amateur wrestling. But they only they don't count. They do. Three. They do one count. They, Once they go the oh the shoulders are down, done. Oh, like yeah. you're done. And but it's not like a kick out. Like you could. You know, like that's you're, not the way it works. You're done. You're done. Once, <laughs> once he's decided your shoulders are yeah. down for it to be ample enough time for me to say it's over. I think it's like three seconds, like the, before he hits his hand on the mat to, to signal the. Okay, that makes sense. That's where the one two three yeah. comes from in wrestling. So. So I think here this might be the finish. I think Flair wins this by a countout. Well, there's your advantage, if you will, your your heelish advantage. Yeah. Flair's tagged out, didn't really do a whole... I mean, he did a fair amount. I could be wrong. I'm not sure if this is the finish. No, Sting and Luger. Oh, no, he... Hold, that's right. Yeah. Luger. Yeah. All right, so, they, so they, they go back. They lean on the friendship thing. Flair wins this by a count out yep. in order to advance to face Savage. 
having done not as much work as the other two. Or exactly. Not and, as damaged. Leaning on the, the, the two of them being friends, Luger, you know, being the snake that everyone knows he is, Sting being the guy that still trusts him. Yeah. Even though he's a fucking snake. And now he just cost him the, the, and, but you almost, the title. Know, but you almost have to do it that way. It almost seemed like the logical thing to do because the match is right after. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like if Flair had gone in there or Luger or Sting gone in there and had a, 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 a banger and an arduous match and then they won, it's like, all right, coming up next, you're like, here comes Savage. Yeah. Bring him out. And it's like, well, that seems a little unfair. You know what I mean? So this almost had to be the way to do it to make it even. Yep. You know what I mean? Yeah. Again, make it even. Again, these guys would have wrestled their third match if they won. Yes. So again, all in the fair, all in the interest of fairness. Yeah, what it sounded like. And it looks like here that Luger's kind of apologetic for doing it to Sting, even though and you see Jimmy Hart, who Jimmy see this was weird too. Jimmy Hart had an on-screen alliance with Luger, okay, which I said I didn't really care for, but he also was kind of managing Flair at this time too, with the Dungeon of Doom. There was this association with the horsemen in the dungeon. Like, this was just weird. Hey, Jimmy needed to collect some paychecks, man. He wasn't doing enough fucking... Look, he needed, he needed to open carrying up his, Terry's his, his tiki bar in Clearwater Beach. I wonder if he still got that. I think so. Or did he shut that down because he's running Hogan's Hangout now? He's probably the general manager of Hogan's Hangout. Yeah, right? Exactly. I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't mind going there. It's a, I've seen pictures of it. It looks like a fun little spot on the beach. I, what, it, what comes across my feed on Facebook is videos of him, Hogan, and his son, Nick. They hype it up for They're karaoke. They're like cutting classic wrestling ages. Karaoke yeah. thing for the karaoke yeah. nights on yeah, Mondays. Like, yeah. And like they're both sitting like... Nick will be sitting there cutting promos using his hands very like savage like yep. macho man. I've like, seen those. Yeah, those Hogan's are kind of fun. Like, mm, yeah. Doing the poses in between yeah. and then like lifts the bicep. Pa- yeah. Passes it off to Hogan and Nick's kind of doing the same thing and they turn their back to the camera. It's it's kind of funny. Yeah. And I think I heard one once and I thought I was going to hear something cool from Nick Hogan but it wasn't. It was they like, do like they do it on Monday nights and sometimes they've incorporated like the you know Come watch Raw while we have this karaoke championship, yeah. and it's a they, they do like cash prizes and stuff. Yeah. So like, you know, I follow Hogan on social media, so on Facebook I'll get a lot of Facebook Live or like Instagram. His Instagram reels will sometimes be live of like them showing people singing and yeah. like you know of course they film him coming into the restaurant with his girlfriend, his, his, his girlfriend that's forty years younger than him, right. and you know his son or whatever playing DJ. There was one night where. Um, well, at least they had Flair stay in the ring. They didn't make him come back out and do another entrance again. Yeah. That was smart. Yeah. <laughs> All right, the floor with the robot on record. Yeah, do another entrance. <laughs> it's like Bobby Heenan when he used to come out forty times. Yeah, he had stock and floor shine. <laughs> um, but um, Hogan would come. You know, they 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 film him on Facebook coming in through the restaurant, and he fucking does the pose and. You know, there's a lot of fans there that are Hogan fans, and I'm not going to deny that. And then there's just regular people that just wanted to go in there and grab a fucking bite to eat and a burger well, having said, and get the fuck out. Again, you know? I'm, I'm not, I'm not a, a Hulk Hogan, you know, disciple or yeah. anything like that. There is still a cultural relevance in, the, in a, like, he's, like, somewhat of a national treasure in some respects. Yeah. Like, granted, he had, there's some controversy that, you know, he'll probably never really get over. But, like, he's still, like... You know, he's still, still a recognizable. He's figure. still a name and a person in our society that people know, and 
you can say you saw. Yep. Like, I think our Aunt Nikki told us that she saw him on a beach in the Bahamas. I'm like, yeah. she'll never forget that. Yeah. You know what I mean? She don't care for Hulk Hogan. Yeah. You know, well, she knows who he is. You know, it's, yeah. like, it's like that. But, like, hey, I saw, like, here would be an example. Not that Hulk Hogan and this guy have any, you know, level of fame that's equal, but John Hamm from the the, the Madman show. I don't mm-hmm. know if the actor. You can yeah, yeah, I know who he is. I saw him in New York City walking down the street one day when I was in New York City, like five years ago. Yep. Like, and I'll always remember that because yeah. that's a famous person. Yeah. That's what Hulk Hogan is. Yeah. So, yeah, play up the entrance. Let people see you come in, you know. That's there like was, part of going. That's the experience. There was one of those Facebook Live videos where, like, they had they had Hogan sitting at, like, a high-top table with his girlfriend. And then, like, Brian Nobbs was there. Nasty boy Brian Nobbs. Man, another wrestler. I and so, like, with. someone someone was singing some song for karaoke. I forget what it was. And... He he's still as obnoxious as ever. Like he's not changed one bit. Other than the fact that he lost a lot of weight and he was very sick recently. Yeah, he almost died from yeah. what I heard. So he's he's sitting back there, he's still sporting that fucking mohawk, that mullet mohawk, him. and he's got like a nasty boy shirt on that's like five sizes too big. Yeah. And you could just hear him in the background. He's like, Yeah! Like just like clapping it up, like 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 in the middle of a song, like, yeah, go rock on! Like he's like oh, yeah. Either he's like loving life because he was almost knocking on death's door, least, yeah. or he's just still one of the nasty yeah, boys. Yeah, I would go just for that entertainment. I don't need to hear the singers. I just want to hear Nas. <laughs> exactly. Remember when we went to WrestleMania in in uh, in New Orleans, and we were walk. It was the day of WrestleMania, and we were walking from our hotel, and we walked by the WWE hotel. Yeah. And we saw Knobs in the car. And remember when I said, hey, look, it's Uncle Nobbs. And, like, he turned around and looked in the car. He was in the passenger seat. I think I vaguely remember this. And, like, I was like, hey, it's Uncle Nobbs. And he, like, turned around and looked at me. Yeah. And you were like, he probably thinks you're, that, that you're his nephew. Yeah, so, I, I may have said that. Yeah, yeah, honestly, I don't remember that at all. That's awesome. I just saw an interesting interview with Bruce Buffer, the brother of Michael Buffer, who yes. was the ring announcer here. I didn't know this. But apparently, Bruce Buffer and Michael Buffer... Did not know that they were brothers. Yes, I did read that somewhere. Yeah, it was like, I forget whose podcast it was, but the, yeah. but I saw it on Instagram, and they interviewed Bruce. And so, uh, apparently, Michael Buffer's real last name, he was born Michael Hubert, if I'm not mistaken. He okay. was, and, and I think he was adopted. Okay. Um, and so, he had his name legally changed to Buffer, because his father's last name was Buffer. Mm-hmm. And um, for years... Bruce and Bruce did not know that Michael was his brother, and one day he had a conversation with his father, and his father finally spilled the beans that like, um, yeah, you're the Randy Rumble guy. That's your brother. I was. You know, he, he goes. He goes. Same last name. Is there any kind of relation? And I guess uh, the old man. All right, fine. Had he? he, he Why don't you have a seat? He got. Yeah, pretty much. He was like, you know. They were driving one day in the car, and I guess he said something like, you know, is, is there any kind of relation there? And he said, actually, and I guess, you know, the old man served in the military. He met a woman. Um, I think the woman either died or she wanted no nothing to do. Bottom line is he was... He, he found out years later. Yeah, he found out years later that was his brother. That's cool. And I think Michael Buffer, if I want to... We don't see him anymore. I'm pretty sure it's because like he has some sort of throat ailment or like a throat cancer. Really, I didn't know or that. Some sort of debilitating um, ailment. 
centered around the throat that would naturally I thought prevent I, him from. This must doing be very recent because I don't recall. Because I thought he did a boxing match. He may have. I could. I feel like I heard he had. Some, he came. He oh. got stricken with something. Speaking of throat ailments, the oh, late Mister yeah, Wonderful yeah. Paul Orndorff. I did that on purpose. Who? Yeah, I know. <laughs> that was a great segue. Michael Buffer. Uh, um, Google it right now. Paul Orndorff in the aisle. There at the time, uh, Paul Orndorff was trying to recruit himself into the Four Horsemen. And the horsemen kind of dodged him, and then finally they gave him an answer that he didn't like, and they pile drove him on the floor, and that was pretty much the end of Paul Orndorff's in-ring career. Yeah. Okay, uh, so it's not. There was some truth to there. I was I was grabbing something from it. So it, at least according to Wikipedia, um, in two thousand eight he was treated for throat cancer. Okay. So my guess is since then he's probably obviously not doing much of this anymore. Yeah, I, I remember seeing him on a boxing fight like a couple of like. Maybe it was a year ago. Uh, might have been. Yeah. Might have been one of Tyson Fury's boxing matches. I think the last time I saw him in. Any- Sorry about that. Software dropped out yet again. I think it's a sign that I might need to update it very soon. I've had the same software since we started recording this a number of years ago. Uh, so I paused it as it dropped out, and we are at two hours thirty-two minutes and thirty seconds with another about twelve minutes left to go on this broadcast. So I'm going to press play right now in three, two, one, play. As we continue here, we talked about Michael Buffer um, recently. As we're watching this, uh, this. Oh, you know what? I, you know what? Hate to cut you off here, but where, where is it? So I went to Ken's Cards recently, right? And they had some old WWF magazines. And while we are on the subject of Randy Savage and Ric Flair in this main event, I have the magazine that has the. Scandalous Miss Elizabeth Ric Flair pictures oh. from the WrestleMania 8 hype. The world's introduction to Photoshop. Yeah. That's super cool. Yeah. I was I saw it and I was like, I've been looking for that magazine for a while. And like on wow. eBay you find it and it's like 25 people like they overcharge awesome. this shit. So it was like eight dollars at Ken's cards. I was like, yeah, I gotta get this That's shit. Awesome. So it's funny too, because I got a great story behind that. So, you know, I used to get the subscription to the magazines. Mm-hmm. And Growing up, Dad was not the biggest wrestling fan. He might watch it here and there, but like for the, any kind of attention he paid to it, it, it was pretty much due to like the humor from Bobby Heenan. Right, right. And so, um, I remember the magazine used to come in like a plastic sleeve, and you'd have to like open it, mm-hmm. and there was you know the the, the address. And um, I came home from school one day, and. <laughs> He goes, your WWF magazine came in and you're never going to guess, you know, there's these pictures with Miss Elizabeth and Ric Flair. And dad, so looking back on it now, like, first thing I thought was like, give me the magazine, I got to see this, right? But now, 40 years old, and I look back and I think to myself, did dad think there was like some like, like naked pictures of her or something? Is that why he opened it up to uh, take a probably. look at it? Well, well, probably because like, I mean, I, I, it, not to sound not, like maybe, a pervert. Well, I, I was gonna say probably not the. I mean, I'd like to think not the pervy element to it more than it is like. All right, uh, should my son be seeing these pictures? Maybe, yeah, you know? maybe, maybe he's probably taking a look. Like, but, let me you know. let me screen these first before. But usually, you know. he usually like if if you know. If I wasn't home and it came in the mail, like your Dave, your mag, your wrestling magazines here, like it came in the mail, 
But, like, he made the extra effort. He's like, Dave, your wrestling magazine came here, and there's these pictures with Elizabeth and Ric Flair. Like, he just kind of, like, he, like, emphasized, like, oh, what, what, really, what? And then when I saw these pictures, I was like, wait a minute. Exactly. Like, the world's introduction of Photoshop. Which, to me, like, a lot of people, Flair has said it, that, like, he doesn't think his WrestleMania 8 match with Savage was anything special. I thought it was the best match on that show. Agreed. And I thought, given the fact that they pivoted from Flair to Hogan to Flair to Savage, and in that short span of time, they ended up making an angle out of something that took place in the magazine. Right. In a short period of time, was pretty damn cool. Yeah. Oh, definitely. You know? Like, now you had... And and here's the magic of that, too, okay? Growing up as a fan, when you watch it, all these things transpire, and you have to watch these angles unfold on TV. You had something that you purchased, that you bought, that was delivered to your home, that was an integral part of the story. There's a phrase for that. It it, it made made it feel like you you had some sort of, like, attachment, like some physical attachment to the storyline itself, if if, if you really think about it. Because now you have... People who subscribe to the magazine, like, oh my God, like, I got this magazine. And it had, like, you know, looking back on it now, it had, like, this very, like, um, National Enquirer tabloid kind of, like, vibe to it because of the nature of the pictures. So there's something, there's an element to that that I think plays here. Um, The phrase is called environmental storytelling. And it's the, it's a, it's a method of storytelling that you see in a theme park. Where when you walk in, it's you and all of your senses taking in everything around you. And in a, in a theme park, you know, a Disney, as an example, you can go one way, you can go the other. Yeah. You can try this ride first, you can try yeah. this ride second. You don't have you to take go. one set direction It's not a linear thing. Yeah. Like television is. Yep. Episodic, week to week. Yeah. So when you got that thing, you viewed it, you looked at those photos at your own volition, at your own time, you were you were having cereal, you were watching TV, you were doing whatever, mm-hmm. and how you absorbed it was entirely up to you. Yeah. That so in that element, that's what environmental storytelling is, is being able to do that because and and you like you said, because it was in your own home, your magazine, it was yours, your name was on it, you have a role in that story. Yeah, that's you a, know what you I mean. Feel like, some sort of an attachment yes, to it. In a in a way that you control. Yeah. With every turn of the page. Because it was it, it, when I would when I would talk to friends about the story, you know, on TV, like, oh yeah, Macho Man found out that you know there was these pictures of his wife with Ric Flair, and et cetera, et cetera, and I'd be like, yeah, I got the magazine in the mail to prove it, and then I show them the magazine, and, and some like, people didn't have the magazine, exactly, they had to get it secondhand or thirdhand or whatever, exactly. So they're experiencing the story differently. Yeah. Than you are because you kind of were like on the on the the, the ground floor of the story, if you will, more so, so than someone else. So here's a spot in the match. Here, Savage just used Jimmy Hart's megaphone to nail Flair, and then he, what it appeared to be intentionally, cut his forehead. I want to talk about as we're watching the the, the closing moments of this this match here, and the the spot. Flair is bleeding like a sieve, and according to our good buddy Mr. Dave Meltzer, um, he claims oh. Is that Brian Pillman, I think? I think that is Brian Pillman with a Chris Benoit appearance in there. Which is going to set up, I believe, the finish here to help Flair regain the title. How come no disqualification takes place here? Like after, I mean, I guess he didn't see, 
Pillman do anything. Oh, there's Anderson. Yeah. First first cameo of Arn Anderson. He didn't see Pillman do anything. He definitely didn't see yeah. Arn Anderson do but anything. He, and your winner, a new WCW World Heavyweight Champion, Nature Boy, Ric Flair, with help from the other members of the Four Horsemen. But I wanted to just touch upon the, the, the subject of blading. Uh, the, the WWF pay-per-view a few weeks prior saw Bret Hart and Davey Boy. Davey Boy. Yep. In their in your house match, and what was that in your house called? Uh, Seasons beatings. Yes, I do remember this match. And uh, Brett claims that that was a accidental um, uh, uh, hard way uh, yeah. cut open. And according to Meltzer, he thinks that WCW um, counters this. counters with this blade job with flair because the WWF did theirs. Probably not, but okay. Yeah. The guy who literally made a career staining his bleach blonde hair exactly. with blood decided that it was, oh, I should probably bleed this week because Bret Hart of all people bled. Yeah. Okay, Meltzer, go fuck yourself. <laughs> That's like the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. His, he says, it's WCW's response to Bret Hart's blade job two weeks ago in your house. WWF hasn't officially reversed its policy and the official story is that Bret bleeding on that show was accidental, but Meltzer doesn't buy it. Flair's blading was definitely intentional, planned, and approved by WCW, believing that the WWF is now allowing blood. It's just another step in the war between both companies trying to outdo each other. Walking piece of human scar tissue, Flair. <laughs> You're telling me that. The thousands of times that he did that, this one was in reaction to someone else doing it? No. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Dude. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't that doesn't fly. It's interesting too, because in the Flair Savage WrestleMania match, he bled, and Vince in just about every match you ever yeah. watched him <laughs> wrestle, and he bled. That's true. But this one, he decided that he wanted he had a, a a new motivation for doing it. That is true. That that that's, I mean, mind you, it did happen very in a very weird like it happened at the end for like the last two minutes. Yeah, not even. You didn't really get a chance to absorb it. Yeah, it wasn't like, oh my god, he's bleeding. Like, there's they, more drama. Yeah, they did. Like, yeah. It happens at the, it happens as the finish. And, and that was Ric Flair. Ric you, Flair would literally just do it to, like, he was like Moxley before Moxley. Yeah. What's your take on, we'll close out this podcast here as we get to the tail end. We see Tony Schiavone. What's your take on blood and wrestling nowadays? It's, I mean, it's, it's something that I'm glad can happen occasionally, but it doesn't need to happen really. So do you, do you think in the past there was overuse of blood in wrestling? Well, I think it's ha- like AEW. It's like happening all the time. So yeah. Yeah. Like, well, over- I'm talking about in the past, like in the glory years. Like they, they- uh, I mean, probably in hindsight, yes, but like I can't, I can't be one to judge if I didn't see it happen. You know what I mean? At least in the moment. So I think, I think it's, it's a, it's just a nice tool to have in the toolbox. The, the worst use of blood in your opinion. Ooh. Like as in like the most gratuitous, yeah, or the, the, most... the the most like gruesome looking that you'd seen. Oh, like just the nastiest looking. Yeah. Um. There's two that come to mind. One Eddie Guerrero yes. quit match with JBL. J- that chair shot too was like thunderous. Yes. That's one. Another one Judgment that day, I was yeah. able to watch live in Hartford. John Cena fought Edge in a match at a house show in 2006. Right. I remember that. And. That was a gusher. Yes. An absolute gusher. Yep. I've never seen that before. Like, even to this day, you're like, I'm like, I, that's still up there as one of the, like, wow. Like, that is definitely. And another one, actually, that was somewhat unsettling. Um, Roman Reigns and Brock Lesnar at WrestleMania 34. That was uncomfortable. Watching. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When you elbowed him and yeah. he got him on the hairline. Yeah. That was, and then just the, 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 the tension in the room. And the, not the room. 
the arena, the stadium at, at, at WrestleMania was like. I think it was also the way too that they had kind of. The, the, the fans the, were backlashing against the match in the, general, yeah. and then Brock was just going in on it, and it just had a very eerie, uncomfortable, tense environment that was starting to cook up, and then that took place, and it was very uncomfortable. Yeah. I remember just being like, not gross, but like, it was appropriate. It like yeah. really played into the environment that was taking place, and that was the, the, the um, I know we're, we're, we're coming up on time here, but that was like, Part of the allure, the mystique of Brock, like, oh, maybe he did that off script. Yeah, you know, and yeah. and he did not. I don't think so. And but again, it, in that split second, the magic is happening where you maybe wonder. Yeah, and that's the genius of Brock Lesnar in that moment. The JBL Eddie Guerrero one, I think, is probably yeah. the worst one for me because not only just how gruesome it looked, but the what transpired after knowing after the story where. He had to go to the hospital to get a blood transfusion because he almost like, fucking died. Out. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's scary almost, shit. You know? No one should have so, to do that. Like, and, and Flair always has said, like, you know, when it comes to blade jobs, like, he drew a sword. But Guerrero, I don't know what he drew, but holy shit. Fucking like, the Declaration of Independence yeah. across his forehead. Yeah. I mean, it was wild. But um, we are we're at the end of this uh, watch along here of Starcade 1995. Overall, what did you think of the show? That was a good show. Yeah. I, I didn't, I mean, like, I think, like I said, as a standalone with some topical nature to it, I thought it was a very good show. I didn't think it was a classic. Yeah. By any stretch. But and underrated, was, I think. Yes. Is very much so. A lot of people, like, you know, I think as you get older, you know, when you watch this stuff, you get a little bit more of a different slant. And I've noticed watching a lot of the older WCW stuff, I think WCW and their, their programming from, like, 90 even in parts of 98 i think they get they get the be, they get a bad rap because of a lot of other shitty things that they've produced and i think this show gets kind of get gets the losers lost. of history history is written by the winners so. lost in the shuffle in, in in many respects yeah and we're so polarizing it's either the greatest thing you ever saw or it's the drizzling shit yeah and this is neither it's neither it's, but it's very it's very solidly good yeah it's I a solid say. good fun show you know what i mean and like, i would go back and like watch you said it. you could you could because of the concept being the best of seven and the, the, the international flair to it, you can show this match, show this event to a stranger, and you don't have to worry about explaining X, Y, and Z yeah. with all the other different stories because, like you said, it's standalone. Yeah, you're not so. mid-season in a drama where you need to kind of catch them up. Yeah. Like, it's just what it is. It's what it is. And, it, and, and for that reason, it's a good show. Well, that's going to do it here for the OG Forbidden Door, a.k.a. Starcade 1995. Thank you for, uh, for, for stopping by and uh, chatting it up with me as we went back and watched this um, here on Kicking Out of Two. Our next episode is a special one. Dennis is going to join me, and we're going to watch the Undertaker Mankind King of the Ring Hell in the Cell match from June of 1998. We'll be approaching the 25th anniversary next week when that show drops. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Dennis and I are going to go back. Dennis is a big McFoley fan, big Mankind fan. So I'm sure he's going to have a lot to contribute as we go back and watch that match uh, on the 25th anniversary of it, uh, which that match pretty much really changed the game in terms of um, the... Gratuitous violence. Yeah, it did. On on a mainstream level. Yeah. Yes. It, yeah. I mean, it really upped the ante. Like it, it's it's it set the bar, cleared it, and yeah, things cleared it. Get past it. Yeah. Like it, it definitely pioneered a a, um, a style and or not a style, but it pioneered a, a, a new layer to WWE or 
more tools that they could go to. Yes. Yeah. So and and and, be and was too. even often imitated by you know even WCW in terms of the violence factor mm-hmm. in later years. Yeah. Um, yeah. So gonna be a lot of fun. Uh, covering that one and i think it's about that time that we officially put this one down for the three count we'll see you all next time